G'day guys, it is the AOS Coach here. I hope you are kicking butt. I am half tired, half super excited because we just come off the back of the Warhammer previews for Lords of the Mortal Realms. And uh, oh my gosh, how cool was that? Domus, I don't know. I, I stayed up and watched it, but it was incredible. Um, I, I had kids, so I, w I didn't get to watch it live, but I checked it all out. It was awesome. This isn't the the stream. To, we're going to talk about the, the the Warhammer previews of the Grave Lords and Lumineth. This is talking about tournament organizers, and specifically, we're going to talk about match play tournaments. It's going to be both about just running just general match play tournaments, but also the grand tournaments, the the big big ones. Domus, you wrote you you run big events over a hundred players. I run an over a hundred player event every year. So I thought we would continue the conversation that we've been having about how do you do it? Why do we do it? How do we do it? If you are an aspiring tournament organizer who's looking to, to, to grow your Age of Sigma community or to bring people back together and run a one-day or a two-day tournament, this stream will be for you. If, uh, if you are someone who's already running a tournament and you want to get up to 50 players, 100 players, 200 players, uh, maybe maybe aspirationally we can get up to 40K, which LVO has, what, 1,000? Like 800, 1,000 players? After so 40K, yeah. So how do we get Age of Sigma up to 1,000 players? So Domus, people should know you by now. If people don't know you, who are you? Uh, I'm a nerd in... Uh the Midwest of America. Uh, I love Warhammer. I've played Warhammer 20 plus years now. Um, and and uh, I'm a wood elf guy. If you follow me at all on Twitter, you know this to be true. And um, I, I love it. I love it. It's uh, AOS for me was great. It was a great drop and, and I've been having a blast with it. Domus, by the way, is, is being very humble. He is an absolute legend in the community and um, runs uh, Midwest Meltdown, which I was meant to attend in 2020. Um, I had a flight booked. I had uh, tickets. Uh, I, I had a doubles partner. Uh, it was going to be Mr. Mephisto and I were going to double up and we had, we had Grudge, Warsoran and, uh, and Dave. Uh, everything was kind of all booked in and then something something minor happened. So, uh, <laughs> but, I'll but I'll be honest. I'll be honest as well, uh, Domus is one of my inspirations where I steal some of his ideas to run at a local level. And I think this is part of the learning journey that we'll all share is that when you start organizing events, you don't have to create it from zero. There are so many awesome Age of Sigmar events that are happening around the world. Steal, borrow. Um, the ability to, for Australia, for example, to come to Midwest Mountdown is almost non-existent. Um, so why not borrow the great ideas that other people are doing, whether it's going to be uh, NashCon, whether it's Holy Havoc, whether it's CanCon, whether it's Bobo, whether it's South Coast GT, whether it's an event that's happening in Warhammer World. They do some really cool events. I think we don't have to reinvent the wheel. So I think that's why I'm really excited to talk to Domus about tournament organising. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I don't know, by the way, if you, if you agree with that statement. Oh, I totally do. I totally do. I Everything... Everything that I started with um, and still build upon was was in, from my years of attending tournaments and observing the lessons of of the tournaments that I attended personally, but also the the tournaments I saw run worldwide, uh, SCGT over in England by the Helen Hammer folks, you know, the Face Hammer GT, which I, you know, had the pleasure to go to. Um, just 
just all of that, you know, just soak it in. Absolutely take the best ideas. It's all out there. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Um, it just becomes about adding your own personal touch to it. And, and that's hard. And finding a good way to do that was incredibly difficult. Um, I got lucky, I think. So I don't believe in luck, only skill. <laughs> and by the way, it's, it's, it's nice to see you again. It's been such a long time. Look how it's, short my beard is. Wow. Uh, look how short. I had none, so <laughs> that was an awesome. That was an awesome experience at Adepticon too. How how fun! And I think that's another cool thing as well as going out to other tournaments, exposing uh, yourself to, to to new ideas, seeing how people run, looking at uh, you know how people run their events because no two event I've ever attended is the same, yep. and. Um, it's interesting how people, you know, look at their tournaments and go, right, how do I put my mark on the world? How do I run the event that I want to attend? And I think that's where you get some people who are like vanilla Age of Sigma, no realm rules, no terrain rules. Um, you get some people who just go only terrain rules and we are only playing in one particular realm. You get people who who do crazy things. Um, it's just finding your niche. Right, and, and I think for me that, um, you know, that's a big thing I've heard tournament organizers say for years is they want to make an event that they want to play in. And that was never my goal. Uh, I, I, my event is an event I'd like to play in, but my goal was always to provide the event that my attendees wanted. Um, being on a mostly personal basis with all the people for the first two uh, Midwest meltdowns and many for the third. And I learned, I met them and got to know them. Um, I'm making the event for them. I'm, it's all, you know, you're creating a product and you're selling a service. So the event, everything about the event is for them. So it needs to fit, fit that group of people, which for our scenario, for our scene here in the Midwest was very, very difficult because we've got very top end, high level players, um, playing top tables, playing the, the, finely tuned list practice 30 40 games before the event and then we got guys that play once a month or twice a month in their basement you know and and they don't care about that you know and everybody in between high-end painters low you know um so trying to find something and that was my goal was to find and try to make a tournament that suited everybody um and that's kind of always where i want to be as a tournament organizer is i want it i want it to be open and welcome to everybody to attend and have a fun experience regardless of how you approach the game because we all do that differently. Absolutely agree. And I think that's where I've seen some people try to build their list to be the absolute best of the best. You mentioned, you know, people who really take Age of Sigma seriously, whether it's going to be through, in Australia, for example, we have um, the Australian Masters ranking. So we have like a competitive ladder. Sure. I know there are other competitive ladders across the world. And I've seen some tournaments run to cater to that 10%, the people who really care about the, the points and the toughest now competition for five rounds. But you've got to remember that that is only one pool of the people who want to come to your event. Some people just want to have two days away from their family, their kids, their life, okay. travel, travel, stay at a hotel, stay with their mates and just roll dice. They couldn't care less. They want to get on the beers. They want to have some fun. Um, some people use these milestones to to be painting awards and 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 that's why they attend and you know they, they obviously want to play games but for them it's the experience and hanging out so i think you are 100 percent correct it's about thinking about the audience thinking about who you want to attend and what would kind of drive them um and not just catering to one particular person and if you do 
you need to recognize that that pool of candidacy, that that pool of top tier people is very small. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, as long as you like the, I, the very first paragraph of my rules pack is all about setting people's expectations because that's, I want them to know that's our goal. We are here for everybody to have a good time, full stop. We want to make a room for the competitive people to live and the rest, the, and the really not competitive people and the people that are kind of in the middle that are trying to be competitive, but not maybe as good at it. Um, you know, there's room for everybody. And that, that was kind of, my personal goal from the beginning for the tournament was was to make a place where everybody that wanted to play could come and play. For for me, uh, and and we'll get to some some, some yeah. For, for me, that lesson was the the hardest learnt when it came to prize support. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit later. I want to talk a little bit at the top end, like how do we get into tournament organizing? Why would you start? You know, like we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk some top end stuff first. But for me. I learned that lesson the most when I put all a lot of my uh, in, in my early days of tournament organizing. I would put a lot of my prize support into um, first, second, third, and then you know yeah. best in the grand alliances. And I'd have some prizes like secondaries, like you know runner up, best death, best um, order, and things like that. But but I, re- I I kind of come to a point where I realized that that wasn't the incentive for most people. Most people weren't coming for the prize support. It's not Magic the Gathering. It's not 40K. I'm not going pro when I when I win uh, S- Sydney GT and I'm about to become a professional. I'm going to get my pro card and I'm going to make millions of dollars. That's not the incentive. And I think for me, I learned a lot of lessons along the way to how I could kind of diversify and start kind of spreading the love and catering to what is essentially the fat middle of the tournament organizer, the, the players, the people who want to just go, win, who want to just want to win three games. If they can win three games, they've had a great time. I actually saw that lesson unfold personally in in one of the many Adepticons. I've been going to Adepticons since 2005. Uh, So in one of the many Adepticons I went to, I think it was 2009, um, the top table was two gentlemen, one from from the East Coast, one from the West Coast, and longstanding rivalry. Uh, And the game just devolved into an ugly shouting match. Um, And it the whole room knew what was happening. It was there was no hiding it. It was it was ugly, and it was and it was that competitive spirit. They they both wanted to win because the Adepticon prize packages are amazing, mm. um, and they always have been. And that's just kind of one of the foundations of Adepticon. And and what we do is we you know. But that's another story. But witnessing that firsthand, and I was in fact staffing the event at the time and had to help deal with it. Um, just really, it just kind of painted the picture for me. And when we talk about price support, it, that's why I do price support the way I do. Yeah. And we'll talk about price support. And I think I'm, I'm in a really good spot now. And I think I know exactly how to write, write do the best price support. Um, because I'd learned very quickly that becoming first, second and third or, or grand Alliance best of, uh, is the prize itself. Correct. That, that is I, the prize itself. hundred percent agreed. That trophy is the price itself. Why do I need to give you a start collecting box? But, hey, we're going down a rabbit hole. Let's start at the top. Domus, why are you a tournament organiser? And what is a grand tournament? Because I know you've obviously got your match play tournaments, whether it's a one-day or a two-day event. But when you talk about Adepticon, when we talk about uh, CanCon, when we talk about these these big events, what, what what is a grand tournament to you versus what is just a traditional match play event? So just 
just because of my uh, my quote unquote upbringing in the hobby, um, the first grand tournament I went to was a GW run. It was the Chicago GT, literally grand tournament, um, and it was a two day event. And it was basically, and and that kind of starts my foundation of what a grand tournament is. And then there's different levels. So a, a grand tournament to me is a two day event, primarily all housed in a hotel. Um, so that we're all in the same space. We and we, you know, we have rooms. We kind of live in the same space. And we spend the cup, the, the bulk of the two days together. Um, and events like Adepticon, you know, where that's now five days. Uh, it's for me, it's a week because I'm a big part of the setup teardown. But you know, it's it the scale you can go up and down. So, but for me, a grand tournament starts with a two day event, um, and that's that's kind of my definition. Always has been. By the way, I can count myself as a part of that team because I did help you help you set up a depth of cons. Absolutely, I did pull down. The help we got in that year was amazing. So, so much fun. But yeah, to me, you know, to me, the grand tournament is is definitely kind of catering towards the match play. It is more structured, more formal. Um, you are catering to a larger pool because you can have match play. Match play is just that competitive. You know, we've got points sure. behind it. You know, narrative can obviously be points uh, points focus as well. But when you start thinking about, and I, and I know talking to Clint from CanCon, Clint from the Heralds of War podcast, um, he runs Australia's largest event. 240 players was the last time CanCon 2020. Um, when I look at Clint's packs, Clint's packs are very vanilla. They're very plain. And the reason for it is, I mean, he's got some very interesting flavors to it. Right. But when you start going to 100, 200, 300 players, you know, the quirkiness can really put off players and it can, it can create issues. So you've got to think about the more you scale, uh, yes. the, the tighter your rules are. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself having problems with player interaction, player interpretation, and managing an event that really shouldn't be managed. It should be players just having fun. You've practiced. And and that just comes with the scale too. The more the more bodies you throw in it, the the more opportunity there is for for personalities to clash. I mean, it's just you know we're people. At the end of the day, it happens. Um, you know, and it's just it's just diffuse and move on. So, um, but as go ahead. No, please, no, please, please. I you'd asked also why I started organizing tournaments, um, yeah, and it, it's very simple. Um, there's a gentleman. Um, who most people know, I would assume, his name's Alex Gonzalez. And in in 2016, 2017, it basically an AOS, Alex championed AOS um, before most anyone else did in the region, um, including myself, but back before the GHB. You know, Tom McClure and I were playing in our basements and we were having fun, but we didn't know, you know, how's this gonna shape? There's no points, what do we do for tournaments? Um, and Alex kind of took the reins and and ran that first Adepticon that first year um, and used one of the various homebrew systems. I can't tell you which one, but but basically he started building the AOS community. Um, and he was key in my mind in building the amazing AOS community we have today in the Midwest. Um, but we got to a point where Alex was running all the tournaments. So he would run he would run at Wapaka, he would run the AOS events at Wapaka in January. Then we'd get to March and he ran all the Adepticon tournaments. And then we typically had nothing in the summer. We'd get to this to the fall and he'd run Dragonfall. And and the pattern here was that Alex never got to play in a tournament. And Alex loves the game like the rest of us. 
Um, Tom and I had always talked about running a tournament. So in, in 2017, we finally decided to do it. Um, Tom, Tom is my silent partner. Um, I don't do this without Tom. I can't do this without Tom. Every idea I bounce off of him. Um, but, but primarily that first year, he was the financial guy. He was the backer. Um, so he was there, you know, making the deposit, covering the cost if we needed, whatever. He, that was his primary role. Um, but, but that is was why. Is he a sugar daddy? Is he is my sugar daddy. Have you seen? Daddies that want to bankroll me. I'm, I'm, I will. I want a Tom. Where is my if, Tom? I want to. If you've ever daddy. seen his Warhammer collection, his basement, you know he's my Warhammer sugar daddy. <laughs> I, well, I always. Want, if, you want, if you want some side booty and a different postcode. Yeah. Uh, Hit me up. I always joke that I shop in Tom's basement first. That's actually not a joke. Um, because he usually has so much stuff that he's like, Yeah, I really should let this go. <laughs> but but anyway, that was why we started our first year was was A, we something we always wanted to do. Um, but B, we really wanted to give a tournament that Alex could come to. Uh, and like I said, there was traditionally no tournaments in the summer. My birthday is in July. Um one of my friends, uh, the Raj from Point Hammered, had always run a tournament in, J in July on his birthday years ago that we used to always go to. And then he stopped, just he kind of faded out, had a kid, had a family. Um, so I was like, that's a great idea. So that was my our first year. It was on my birthday weekend, and it was my birthday party. The Tom store is quite tight, see? <laughs> um, so that was... You know, the first year was, hey, let's have a birthday party. Invited all my best friends from Warhammer, um, you know, the people I love, the people we play this game with. And I think we had 26 year one, something like that. I I, I got a brand new M2 drive and I couldn't pull up my spreadsheets because I haven't installed Excel yet. Oh, so good. it was something like that. But that's why we started was to was to take care of Alex and give him a place to play. That was the primary goal. I think it's a very similar, like like listening to your journey, it's very similar because in Australia, uh, anyone who listens to Australian content, whether it's mine, Doom and Darkness, you know, any of the, the people out there who are creating content from Australia, we always talk about Clint from the Heralds of War as being the grandfather of Age of Sigma. Sure. And it was a very similar journey is that Clint always started the events. He ran not only CanCon, but he ran a lot of one-dayers and two-dayers. Um, for, for the record, Clint travels about, 1200 kilometers or maybe more to run cancon wow. so it's not even it's not even in a local uh community for him it's a significant travel and then there was one particular year i think it was maybe two years later that he came down to sydney which is still a good 600 700 kilometers from where he lives to to run a doubles event in sydney and i thought wow. that was bizarre and i'm like why on earth is clint running uh something in a whole different community other than just being a generally awesome dude and I think for me, that was where I thought I needed to step up. Um, I didn't want to run five tournaments a year. I wanted to run just one. And yep. if everyone kind of contributed one tournament a year, all of a sudden we would have so many different events where there were going to be narrative events, doubles, teams, uh, match play, one dayers, two dayers, playing in the realms, not playing in the realms, uh, 1,500 points, 2,500 points, you know, and, and something in between. You know, we could have a spread of really cool events and I am seeing it slowly, but I think there is more opportunity for people. And hopefully through this discussion, we can understand the role of a tournament organizer. And for anyone who wants to become a tournament organizer, we can share all of the experience to help you take that first step. And 
And the cool thing is, is that so many people have now walked this path that you've got experience to lean upon. Domus, how many times have I hit you up last year right. for advice? Yeah, quite a few. We've talked I'll a lot. To, I'll, I'll talk to Dave from NashCon. I'll hit up him up for advice. He does awesome uh, secondary schemes. I, you yep. know, I'll hit up the narrative guys like Mitzi and Jimbo and Tim Rawson. I'll get them for narrative events. There are so many cooler people out there who are now talking about events that I can now go, hey, I want to do yep. this. How do I do it? And, you know, they, they, they really help you with your And journey. everybody is happy to help. You know, I mean, I, I, I the same way I talked to the Raj, I talked to the Helens. You know, I always call them the Helens, <laughs> Dan and Wayne. <laughs> Sorry. Well, 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 not just Dan and Wayne. You've also got uh, mom Russ. and sister who, mom and sister who also, um, yep. Yep. They, they help run that event. So Absolutely. And I, and I have, a, you know, I'm close. I've always been close to Adepticon. Um so I, you know, that's another big draw of experience for me is, I mean, those guys do a, a, the, an event on a scale I can't even fathom. So, you know, um, the, one of the main event organizers from Adepticon was where I learned about proper booty space between tables. You know, what, what's the proper distance? And uh, seeing the way that he did it was, was really interesting because he's old school, but just understanding it and it's six feet, but understanding but, it was awesome but that's something that you don't think about like when you're thinking looking at your, your floor space we think about the tables but we then don't think about the booty space you know we've all been yeah. to a tournament where we are asked to ask with somebody uh, i'll never forget BrizCon, which was in 2017 and clint and i were booty to booty and that's really uncomfortable. And like I made it even more uncomfortable, like you know, grinding Clint uh, <laughs> while he was trying to play poor guy. Of course you did. <laughs> but when you're doing that for a full weekend, it's so uncomfortable. So even just understanding distance, understanding how you can space out the table. And you know, during COVID, space is gonna be even more important as people pick up, whether it is, you know, managing the disease or people's expectations moving forward. Um, I don't know how people are going to think about events. Maybe they're not going to be as comfortable to crammed up. Um, sometimes, and I know Adepticon does this really well, is you'll often have tables next to each other with no spacer. And, you know, sometimes when, you know, if you're moving your models, you're literally like right next to an opponent. So understanding space, space requirements, yep. which then leads into your capacity for an event, which means how many tickets you can sell, the profitability, what you can then spend on the event. There's always like a big downward flow. And I think prior to we went live, Domus and I were having a really good talk about um, how to us a great tournament, 70% of it is actually preparing for the event. If you do a really good preparation, you will have a great event. It, if you don't it do kind of runs itself. It runs itself. Um. And, you know, like like speaking of community members as well, like I think for me, I wanted to shout out, um, you know, Crazy Horse. Um, you know, we <laughs> took, Crazy Horse is a 3D printer. And, I, and for me, that has been one particular area that has allowed me to supercharge my events is 3D printing. Um, uh, Anthony Crazy Horse has been donating yeah. tables to, uh, you know, Nova, to, to um, Adepticon, to, uh, to a whole, you know, a whole range of events. But now with these tools, if anyone's worrying about how do I get terrain on the table, um, how do I uh, – I've been printing trophies. I have been uh, – I've been running a lot of one-dayers um, where my, my profitability margin is really low. I've, 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 you know, For me, I always run events that are cost-neutral. I don't want to spend any of my money. And I've been giving away 
terrain. I've been giving away um, uh, faction-based combat gauges and accessories because I can print them at a really low cost, but sure. they're perceived at a very high value. Sure. Yeah, and and it's a big deal because um, we have a I basically the guy that does all the adept the adepticon printing. I have access to him, and he'll do stuff for me. I, you know, I'm still paying, but I'm not paying true cost. You know, it's closer to materials and time. So no. So anyway, anyway, like if I think about tournament organizing today, I think it's it is easier for you to get into and and, and we're going to get into the weeds in a minute but um one thing you know crazy horse is just one of the examples but uh in australia we have a culture of um and we'll talk about this with terrain but in australia we have a con a culture where clint when we started scaling cancon it got too big like it, it we we went from 50 players to 100 players to 200 players like back-to-back -back consecutive years and when when we went from 100 to 200 players and doubled the table requirements. If you think about 10 pieces of terrain on a table, even if you go eight, eight, piece of, eight, eight pieces of ter terrain on 100 tables, that's a lot of terrain for that's Clint. A terrain. That's a lot of terrain for Clint to own, create, paint, store, travel with. Yep. So we, we, we kind of created a culture where uh, players now bring three pieces of terrain to an event. Nice. Um, they, they will set it up very similar to Allegiance terrain, and there's a bit of a negotiation. We're all very cool about it, which means that Clint only has to contribute four pieces per table, which is much more manageable and easier to scale as opposed to trying to work out on a run a 30-player event, where do I get 300 pieces of terrain to run an event? Yeah, right. I lucked out in that regard um, because I do the lion's share of of painting terrain for Adepticon, um, so I therefore have access to it. So so, and we can have two hundred tables for we uh, two hundred players. We have a hundred and twenty tables now. I think maybe more with the stuff I did twenty twenty nineteen twenty twenty for the twenty twenty year that didn't happen. Um, but we had quite a lot, and I have you know having access to it it's literally in you know and then some of it's in my house right now but it's in my backyard um, but being able to use it we also we've also you know helped local event organizers with terrain um, i've helped uh, brendan out quite a bit in wisconsin with terrain uh, brought terrain to wapaka you know we've uh, we've done everything we can to help people with terrain but but not having to worry about terrain at all for me was a big part of making this easy. So, so I understand for a lot of people that that's a, that's a huge hurdle. And that's why I wanted to call it out because, um, because you don't have to do it alone. I think the first piece I'm really, really trying to reinforce here is you don't have to do this alone. Um, in Australia, the Queensland community as well. So that's not the community I'm a part of. It's the, the region above, above where I live. Those guys are exceptional at, pooling their resources. So uh, there's a, a team of Brishammer guys. You've got uh, the Runax guys. You've got the Toowoomba guys. You've got the Mango Mafia. These are all clubs and they run small events or they have their own little games club and they'll pull resources together to run these big events. So again, and then they'll share it. So knowing that, you know, Brishammer has happened, they'll then share those terrain pieces with, um, with the Runex teams, then they'll kind of share them as well. So I guess, again, long story short, if you're running an event, you don't have to go out and create 50 to 100 to 300 pieces of terrain. Um, you can tap into the community, you can get some assistance, uh, and people are normally willing to share and, and support. Doom and Darkness, I, I sent a whole bunch of terrain to Doom and Darkness 
for him for SAGT. So, and that's crossing state borders. So, yep. again, you don't have to, you don't have to well, start from zero. And we've had clubs like uh, the, the guys from Wisconsin, their club made uh, numerous tables of terrain and they bring it and we use it at Adepticon, but we don't, we don't keep it. That's their terrain. That was, that was, they wanted to make tables and I was great, please. But they wanted to keep it and own it themselves because they were building for their own event. So it, everybody wins. Yeah, I, I look, I, I, I keep my terrain. Um, I, I own all my terrain. But when uh, when Sydney Slaughter, Chris Welfare, Jane Maybury, which is the other big event in my community, when they say, hey, Anthony, I need some terrain. Hey, I need some boards. I need some battle mats. I'm happy to share it. Sure. So I think, again, you know, um, you, you're not starting alone here, guys. So uh, do pull your resources. Pay. People are willing to help. My local games workshops and my local uh, game stores are always willing to lend terrain to me as well. So um and, and that's a, that's a big barrier to entry I, th I think that's kind of where i started with because getting terrain is usually one of the hardest things to do and it's, it's very expensive unless you own a 3d printer buying games workshop terrain or going out and buying terrain is expensive and you only use it like once a year unless you go the homebrew route and you do everything out of styrofoam which is perfectly valid um I, the first so i started making a terrain for adepticon in 2006 um, and i did it with a friend of mine um, who no longer plays the game, but um, he's my one of my creative genius pals. And we did everything out of just, you know, stuff we could find at, at Menards, any of the do-yourself stores. Um, and then we, you know, hot wire foam cutter, we carved up styrofoam, and we made 20 plus tables of jungle terrain for Adepticon that year, um, which we still both have. That's uh, very dated. <laughs> we don't still, use it much anymore. My, my first tournaments, that's what I did. I went and bought the insulation foam. And uh, each country, depending on where you want, run it, uh, Australia, we go to Bunnings, and I think it's yellow. In yep. America, is it blue or is it pink? And then in it's England, pink. it's typically yeah, and then in pink. England, it's blue. In England, it's blue. So it's the same well, We have thing. some blue, but it's typically pink. So what I'll what you'll do is I use my kitchen knife. You can use a kitchen yep. knife. Uh, you know, you go to people like the Terrain Tutor, uh, the old school how to make wargaming terrain that Games Workshop used to produce. Go to your aquarium store and buy. Like I actually went to eBay. I bought really cheap, uh, like for a couple of dollars, a whole bunch of aquarium plants that are great for jungle. You know, sure. pick up some some trees. But either way, um, terrain doesn't have to be expensive. No, it sure doesn't. Uh, it it's messy. And it's a process like that. That's the, you know, terrain for me is a time-based process. Um, it's not like I can sit down and paint an army fairly quickly, especially with the airbrush. But with terrain, it's, you know, even regardless of scale, everything has to dry. And, you know, because you can't spray paint terrain. So you, it's always paint, it's wet, let it sit, let it dry. So it's like every stage for me is a day plus because there's the dry phase. That's how I like to paint. I just like to paint. Um, uh, I, I like to paint production line. But let's stop talking terrain. I think we've okay. kind of talked enough. But we, I mean, we could talk terrain till the cows come home. And oh, I, yeah, I, might I, just get, I might as well just get uh, a hobby ho a, a crazy horse on the on the stream. We'll talk three <laughs> D printing forever. Let's talk logistic. Let's talk about you got this idea and uh, whether it is going to run a match play event, whether it is to bring your community back together because it's a bit safer to play. Maybe you want to, you, you're sick of traveling to other communities and you want a, a large match play event in your community. How do you start and how do you bring this all to life? And I imagine you're going to tell me the players pack, but how do you bring this idea to life? 
Well, so when I started, um, for me, it wasn't the pack because the the pack. I won't say that the pack is easy, um, but but the like I knew what I wanted for the pack. I wanted a match play event. You know, I I didn't have all the details worked out, but I had a general idea. Where I started was with the venue because um, the venue was crucial to me. It is probably the most important piece. Um, having been to multiple tournaments, the best tournaments were always in a hotel. And it and it wasn't just a hotel. It was a hotel where you know the the, the event was actually in the hotel itself, and and it was less about the the games you play, but it was more about the after party. So, you know, you ever you set up on Friday, people come in, they might play some, they might not, but people hang out, socialize Friday night, hang out uh, Saturday after the tournament, and hang out and socialize. And that was the key. That's that's a huge part of why I go to tournaments is that Ooh. social aspect because because these are all good personal friends of mine, um, or will become that way, and that's what I want to do. I want that social interaction. So that was where I started. Was I had to have for my first tournament, I had to have a venue where we could we could play our game, where everybody had a place to sleep, um, but then we could you know we could hang out. There was booze. That's a key factor. Uh, not for everybody. It's for me. But you know, all those things needed to be available and accessible. Food on site is great. Um, that first year, those first two years, we didn't have great food options on site, but we had food close. So that was another factor. Uh, price is a huge point because the price of the venue really, for me, dictates the ticket cost. Yeah. Um, that's the for me. That's the number one. Uh, what am I going to sell my tickets for? What, is it, what am I going to charge for my tickets? It's going to be based on what the venue is going to cost me. Some very simple division. It's interesting, though, because um, for me, the venue is the highest risk that you have at the event. Um, and I say that because uh, when you don't have reputation, and by the way, you can run events at stores. Um, if you said to a local game store and you negotiated, hey, I want to run a one-day or a two-day event at your store. You know, you obviously negotiate and they'll have tables and terrain and, you know, there's some simple ways to get yourself a footing in the community. But what we're talking about here is going on our own. It's hiring a local community community uh, hangout. I've seen churches being used, their community halls, basketball stadiums, well, not stadiums, but basketball halls, um, hotels, you yep. know, uh, all these venues. If I think about my venue costs, it is approximately one third of my total ticket sales. So if I'm if I'm running an event and it's costing me, let's say, six grand, and that's including uh, price support, uh, uh, any investments that I need to make, there's a whole bunch of things that you got to pay for. Usually, my 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 uh, venue cost is approximately about one third. Uh, but the challenge is it's a fi it's a fixed cost. So if I don't sell X amount of tickets, then Either I'm, I'm taking away from my price support sure. or I'm running at my, my event at a loss. And for me, the one guiding principle I've always had as a tournament organizer is I don't want to run at a loss. And I never run my events at a loss. And that allows my wife not to have a crack <laughs> at me for spending money. Because I can say to her, I'm spending this money up front, but I'm being paid back through tickets. And sure. I'm always running at a cost neutral. We did those first two years. The first two years of us were was a loss instead of cost neutral. But we it was something Tom and I had talked about going in, um, and we considered it an investment. Um, this was something we wanted to do, not 
for a year, not for two years, for a long time. It's something we plan to do for a long time. So it was an investment in the future. Um, and we were happy to do that. The first year, all the prize support came out of my basement or Tom's basement. It was all our personal models that we gave for prize support. Um, you know, so it's just stuff like that. That was, but that was our commitment to the kind of event we wanted to run. Um, and we wanted to run a, an event with some longevity. So, so it was, it was, we're looking 10 years down, not for the very first year. No. And, and last year I bought 45 battle mats. Um, oh, wow. I bought 45 battle mats uh, last year alone. And that's not, that's not to talk about the other investments that I've made, but what I have done, and I might just quick, I'll show it off, you know, a little bit later is I have done some uh, profit and loss and I've, you know, I've got those fixed costs, those battle mats, but I've spread the cost out over a few years. So sure. while I might have spent big on certain investments, whether it's a logo um, or it might be battle mats or terrain, you can make that money back over time and you become cost neutral maybe in three years or two years as long as you stick to the plan. But yes, sometimes you've got to make an upfront investment uh, or you just don't scale as quickly as you might want to. Correct. Correct. And, and the scale is a huge risk. I mean, I'm the first year we were 26, the next year we were 40, year three we were 115. Um, and, and that was terrifying. Yes. Yeah. So like I had the means because because of my connection with Adepticon and the terrain, I had the mats and I have the terrain. So I had all the means. So it was just simply a matter of finding the venue, you know, but that first year I was sweating bullets because you just don't know. I mean, I knew that my the, the prior year, the people, the 40 people who had been loved it. And yeah. the community, the AOS community just exploded from 15 to 16. And it just, it kept coming on and new tournaments were popping up everybody everywhere. And everybody was so excited to play. Um, you know, and it just seemed like the time was right. So, so, you know, we took the leap, Tom and I took the leap and crossed our fingers and got really, really lucky. You know, just, it, it just turned out to be something people wanted. Um, the, so my, when you talk about venue costs, my venue is actually two thirds of my total cost. Um, the big reason for that here is because it's in the summer and it's wedding season. And that's why there was never typically really any tournaments um, in the summer because the venue prices all go skyrocket because it's it's big wedding season. I'm in spring, my, my grand tournament is in spring. So I'm, I'm about to hit it. Yep. Um, but yeah, like, like, like venue costs are expensive. And as you said, like it'll be uh, the floor space. Uh, and it also sets the scene of the event. So my my GT is run at uh, a very premier, I wouldn't call it a hotel. It's uh, like a sports club, I guess, is the American equivalent. We call it like an RSL or a leagues club. Okay. Um, it's very much like a hotel setting without the actual accommodation. But um they, they're quite expensive but you're running them at a hotel in wedding season yeah yeah uh hotel and wedding seasons just was just crazy uh so i you know i just did the best i could found the most competitive place for the first two years that fit the need i kind of wanted to stay there because i liked the people i liked um i liked the environment but we wanted to grow and and their cost for growth just became a huge issue so we our first event the first two years was in peoria and we actually moved to bloomington which is about 40 minutes away from where i live uh, peoria is where i live so we moved it about 40 minutes from where i live it's actually an easier place to get to for all the people coming 
um, from all the states that come because it's it's right on the interstate and it's a hub. But we, we found a better place at a reasonable rate. And it was a, a conference center. So it's a giant conference room with a bar in between it and the hotel, but it was all attached. Um, and even though there were three separate businesses, it was perfect because there was food, there was drink, there was Warhammer, and there was a place to sleep. And nobody had to get in a car and drive, you know, so it was just great. Well, that's, that's some interesting, com uh, you know, considerations for your venue, right? Because they're, they're the same things that I consider. So I need I need a, a, a gaming space. I need somewhere that I can run my event. Um, I, one of the lessons that I've learned as well in my communication is making sure I've got access to the venue in advance. Yep. So setup is on a Friday. And sometimes your venue will charge you. Sometimes they won't. But you've got to have that conversation early. Otherwise, you're setting up, again, 20, 50, 100 tables uh at a crack of dawn before you run your event so and that's that's no good it it's always good. it's always interesting having this conversation with the venue people because they're like you want to do what like i specifically remember the lady was like you're having a chess tournament no well that's what we're gonna call it okay that's fine that's the easiest way like <laughs> yeah. it's like a board game day because like yeah. their, their minds like god bless them that is like yeah what <laughs> yeah the people that haven't heard of you know haven't heard of the hobby in the games are just kind of like you guys are doing some weird stuff <laughs> but you, you you raise some other really good points so venue space i think understanding um I should bring up the photo a little bit later, but understanding the venue space and the floor layout and mapping out or just thinking about how many tables you can put. And as you mentioned, the, the bum space between yep. you and your opponents and not having a squishy space, making sure that there's plenty of places. Are, and that might even impact the scenarios you pick, right? Well, you, you, also need, you also need storage space, you know, because people have stuff. Yeah, they have people army. Are bring, if you're going to ask people to bring display boards, like where are yeah. they going to put the display boards? Exactly. Army cases, you know, whatever their stuff is, this game takes stuff. You know, you got to bring books. You got to bring, like, I have a small box of, of dice and tools I bring with me. You know, it's just, there's a lot of stuff to play this game. So you got to, that was the first, the first lesson. Uh, the first year, the big lesson I learned was I did not play in the space well enough. And we were snug and we were bumping. Um, but it it was a small, close knit community, so it was all right. But that was a big for a big lesson for the first year. Um, and we didn't have enough for me as well. I, I we I, didn't I, have enough space for the stuff. My big lesson was I um, I sold my tickets at a fair cost, and I had a really big space. Um, but I because I I sold out really quickly. Um, people were very, probably a bit too close to what what I was really comfortable with. So I changed venues and I raised my ticket prices. Uh, my ticket prices are probably the most expensive in the community, but in return, they get more space at a premium venue that has Wi-Fi, it has aircon, it has a serviceable bar, it has uh, its own toilet, so you're not sharing toilets with other um, other venues, you know, patrons or whatever it might be. Sure. Um, so and and i and i don't and i give them so much space that th that there is no bum to bum kind of stuff so um but at the same time i've seen it run really well i think it's understanding like what you want to run but the other things i wanted to kind of point out really quickly domus is you mentioned transportation whether it's going to be if you are going to go for a grand tournament you've got to be accessible either by car by train by bus by uh by in. air by air if you're flying in like you know how does somebody fly into your your event uh is there parking spaces is it easy to travel to 
um, all of that logistical side you've got to keep in mind. I, for me, I know I always um, I always try to shout out um, Airbnbs and places people can stay should they not be a part of because most of my events are catered to my local community, people in Sydney. Okay. But um, but I do get interstate travellers, but I'd probably say uh, 70% of the people that come to my events are maybe even 80% are local Sydney because, again, I'm in the, I'm in the highest capital city. Imagine sure. New, New York in Australia. Yep. But well, here in the Midwest, um, people travel. You know, I, I've gone – uh, you know, eight plus hours for a tournament, easy. Uh, we just drive. You know, I talk to my British friends, and they're like, exactly, they do that. They're like, what? Because you know, to them, driving more than two hours is just insane. But that's just, you know, we're we are scattered. Um, I've got people. We're in Central Illinois, so we have, and we have people from Minnesota, from Wisconsin. Uh, we have people from Indiana. Obviously, tons of people from Illinois, primarily the Chicago area, which is about three hours north. Um, but, you know, all over, we've got people last year, you were going to come <laughs> from quite a bit of ways. Uh, ben Johnson was going to come from England uh, with less. You know, we've quite a quite a few people are, are going to travel to play this game. So it's that's a huge deal. And that's our particular event has an airport within 10 minutes. So, you know, anyone who's flying, that is an option as well. Um, so absolutely all of that was key factors to look at. And and you don't think about that. Year one, you don't think about that. Uh, and yeah, Brendan, year two was bad. I saw the note. <laughs> it, but it's was, all it was learning. It was tight. Yeah. But it, you know, it was a demand. Like the the people, you know, that was what I was surprised. I think the thing I was the most surprised about is that people liked what we did, um, and and wanted more and wanted and the, so the rapid growth was due to the demand. Uh, so yeah i think for me one thing i've learned because of the demand right and this is not me you know humble brag here guys you know my events have sold out really quickly and um i'll get a, a, a long wait list and there's a temptation for me to open up more spaces let's say i've measured up my venue i i, I do some you know i get the floor layout from the venue right. i then you know use grids and i make up you know the the table spaces and then the bum spaces and you know i mark up uh, like an architect would. And let's say I've got a, a wait list of 10 people, 20 people, 50 people. The temptation would be is to look at that map and go, how can I squeeze in more people? And then the the risk is, is that you then start creating events where people are, you know, bump to bum or, you know, are very squishy, bumping into each other. Yep. And I think it's keeping to your guns. And basically what I wanted to say was a fine balance. And um, it's easy to do, especially like when, you know, people you love don't get in and you want it to event. But you got to stick to your principles, right? Because I think Absolutely. ultimately, and I think when, when we get to some of the other questions, you know, the, the people have asked, you know, how do you how do you write a players pack? How do you uh, run the day? And I think for me, I'm always thinking about. And you know, I, I saw some discussion. You know, Tomb King Tristan uh, had to mention to me, what about Tomb Kings? You know, like would you allow two kings at your event? And I think you know the guiding principle for me is always not about the single player, but the overall event. Yep. Like, what do I need to do and what is the impact? And, yes, I would love someone to be able to run their Tomb Kings. Yes, I would love to be able to run, uh, you know, some crazy, I don't know, let's say the Anvils of Apotheosis. But what's the impact to everybody yep. else? And I think and that has to be the cutting principle. Exactly. And we've tried our goal um, because it's what our community wants. Um, our goal has always been to play the game that GW gives us. 
whatever that is, that's what we're playing. We're we're using their rules. Um, we don't like I do some house rule stuff, but it's common sense stuff you see in a lot of rule packs. Like there was a volume thing that the heal that the SCGT guys did that we lifted because it's great. You know, we talked about. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember, but the trees coming out of the holes. Yep. yep. So the yeah, old silver, stuff, the yeah, old stuff silver like that. Trees out, and we all kind of like said, uh, I, I don't know how, who said it, but I don't either. But it, it was there were you know, so it's stuff like that that we do house rules for, but we don't we don't want to mess with their game at a at a core base of you know whatever it is that's what we're playing because because we're all biased. Um, and I don't want to. I, I want to try to keep my bias out of that event as much as possible, and and that's really what the highly competitive guys want is they want to play. They want to play that game. They want to play it the same way everywhere. Um, so while you know in the Midwest we we all put our own spin on it in various ways, a lot of us hold true to that principle that we're playing their game. We're going to play it their way, and then we just try to add layers to customize and make it our own. And I think what you mentioned as well about it's what your community wants, uh, you know, whether it's through surveys, through polls, through feedback. Um, hey, guys, uh, Slanesh and Daughters of Cain books have just dropped recently. Uh, let's say my event was, you know, coming up in a few weeks from now. Um, should we allow them before the FAQ? And yep. as a tournament organiser, you might say no as much as I really want you to play your new army. Something FAQable hasn't happened yet, so no, I'm going to protect my players. Or you might put the onus back on the players, like, hey, guys, let's do a poll. Um, what what do you think? And I think getting community feedback, do we want to, uh, do we want realm rules? Uh, do you, you know, are these particular scenarios you want to pick? That whole community feel, uh, I think you do really well. And it's interesting you bring that up because the timing of, of our event um, has been every year within two weeks of the GHB. Um, so, you know, and and we've used in every one of our event we've used the new GHB. We had a new edition. Uh, I can't remember what year. I think that was year two. We had the new edition AS two, you know, and we used it. And it was two, maybe three weeks old at that point. Uh, and it wasn't FAQ'd, but we used it. That's what was. That's what nobody wanted to play the old game. Um, and I just, I, I don't do polls necessarily. I just talk to the people. All these people are my friends. We're on Twitter. We're on, you know, on Facebook. We talk about all this stuff. And that's just, that was what wanted to do. Um, you know, last year, not last year, but 2019 was interesting because the GHB was coming. And there there were some big changes. Uh, I happened to have a little bit of insider knowledge. So my house rules was basically the FAQ that was coming that, because I knew that's what was coming, and so that was how I did that. Um, so stuff it, like that. But if you did it, maybe don't hold your event so close to either oh, January, because yeah. I know CanCon and LVO cop the, uh, and they're big enough events to be able to work with Games Workshop, but you having something so close to July, you've got to be very clear. Like, this is a, a moment that happens every year. Yep. What and am people I know. Do? people know that come to our event you know if there's a, if something new comes out we're probably using it so like i wouldn't do i think i have a cutoff of a week is my cutoff but you know we know for the big stuff when that's going to be uh and i know typically know well enough in advance to plan around it so 
See, I sell my tickets in March, April, and my event is October. So people know, and I communicate very clearly, that the event you are signing up for is a new GHB event. Yeah. Now, I don't know the scenarios yet. We don't know how the game's going to change, but know that what you're signing up to is five games, blah, 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 blah. This is the theme. And I think Crazy Horse down below has made yeah. a really good point. It's it's about sticking to the, the rules of the game, the, the, the core of the game, adding, adding your own twist. And part of the reason why I want to talk to you, Domus, is I think you do this really well. Um, I ran an event, my last GT, Sydney GT, was 2,500 points. Uh, I know in the previous years you have given people a free monster. Uh, the event that I was signed up to, but unfortunately because of COVID, we couldn't run it. You gave people a free Underworld Warband uh, from their Grand Alliance in addition to their 2,000 points. Yep. So oh, I really wanted to see that happen. Oh, I was like, so excited. I wanted to run the Daughters of Cain Warband in my cities. I'm like, oh. Those are some of the coolest models available to us. Um. And they don't fit well in the game. They just don't. Um, and you know, it's a shame. And so that was the that was the birthplace. It, it it all predicated off of the monster idea. Um, so the the monster idea for anybody that's watching that doesn't know was was I love Gur. I think Gur is cool. I love the scenario where you use the extra beast. But um, as uh, Brendan's exactly right. But part of the magic of Part of the problem with Gur was all beasts are not equal, you know, equal. So you'd get somebody that would bring a giant, nice fluffy little toy, and then somebody would bring a vampire lord on a zombie dragon, which is also a behemoth, you know. So it it just never worked out. So the idea was was the idea was how do we how do we use that and how do we play with it? So the everybody got to bring a free monster, and and the reason that this developed was I wanted to run a painting competition with our tournament. That was always a goal of mine was, was um, I'm a massive hobbyist. Hobby is my focus. I wanted to, like I've done a lot to incentivize the gamers, the people that, that hone their competitive edge. So I really wanted to push and focus on the guys that hone the hobby edge. So that having a painting competition was my way to do that. But I didn't want to do like a golden demon or anything, you know, similar to that with many categories and a lot of judging. But with the beast, it let us it let us a require you to bring a beast, and that was what we used for the painting competition. We had painting awards around the beast, um, but then b we wrote our own war scroll for it. So it didn't matter what you brought; everybody's monster was the same. Um, you know, and looking back on it in hindsight, it was it was fun and it was cool. It wasn't super impactful to the games. Um, was the takeaway I got from all the players. Um, Everybody loved it. They loved it. You know, the high-end painters loved it because they brought these beautiful models, and we had them all on a table, and we judged them, and there was Players' Choice Awards for them where the community voted for their favorite, and then the judges, we picked our favorite. Uh, and it was just – it was such a fun thing, and you could just feel the excitement about it in the discussions in the room that weekend. Um, so, yeah, that was 2019 – or twenty. Is it no, not 2019, 2018. So, so for 2019, the the idea was how do we okay, how do we do that? How do we capture that magic again? I, I wanted to do the same thing and I didn't know how, and it took me a while, but but I think it was because the Sylvaneth Warband came out and I absolutely love those models. Not the Karnathi ones, but the one you I think it's Uriel, Urel or something like that. Um the one before that. 
so I, I was just like, man, this is so cool. I want to paint this, but I'm never going to use this in a tournament. Why would I paint it? That's kind of how my brain works. Um, Brendan's not wrong about the studying monsters. But I wanted to figure out a way to incorporate those into the game. And so that, that was where the idea was. Let's do this. Let's do a f So the first thing that I did was once I decided, hey, I think this is good, this is viable, was I had to go through all the War Scrolls. You know, what am I doing? What kind of silly shenanigans am I opening myself up to? Um, and I didn't do that alone. I, I invoked quite a few people, primarily um, the British guys, primarily the Facehammer guys, because they're my bros. Um, but I just, I just said, if I do this, you know, let's talk about what I'm opening myself up to. What, and there was, there was like one potentially really ugly scenario with, I think it was a Nurgle War Band, but it wasn't, it wasn't going to break the game. It wasn't like anybody was going to come in and steamroll every game with their Nurgle War Band. So at the end of the day, we was like, you know what? It's not enough. We don't care. We're, this is what we're doing. And that was the plan for uh, 2019 was was to let people bring that Shadespire Warband. It was risk versus reward. Uh, it sorry, it would have been 2020 because... Um, 2020, yes. I'm off a year. Thank you. Because right, yeah, 19 was Monsters, 2020. 19 that was, was Monsters, yep. Um, but you, you raised some interesting points is, you know, there are ways that we can put our own spin on an event without it breaking the game. Uh, whether it is just, you know... Uh, uh, look, uh, here's a couple of cool examples I've seen. So uh, locally in Australia, um, the Brizhammer guy, so Chris Stratford and his crew, one thing that he does really cool is he gives every person who comes to his event five dice, his Brizhammer dice. So he's got them custom made by Chessex or whatever it might be. And they're sure. all like just things that he would, he would normally give. And like he's very generous with the players pack. He puts a lot of his money and his profits back in so everybody gets something cool combat gauge, uh, objective tokens, um, some dice, some stickers, you know, very, very generous with, with his packs. But what he does is he says every player once per game can re-roll one of those Brizhammer dice. So should you be using those Brizhammer dice in your attacks, your hits, your wounds, your priority, whatever it might be, I no, I think it's not, not priority, but uh, in your normal attack sequence, you can re-roll one of those dice as long yep. as you use these dice once per game. And I thought that's yeah. a really nice very very small impacts but it's it's so great well we've we've had a lot of that over the years in our in our events not not necessarily my events but in events in the midwest and i specifically wanted to avoid that i got into a spot last year i i had dice made and i was selling them and we got into a spot where we were upside down financially so i did have to turn it into a re-roll dice and sell it and it just kind of killed me because i have won games before with the re-roll dice um, now specifically was eighth edition when throne of vines was a thing i don't know if you played or remember but you'd roll that one and you miscast on your slon re-roll that there's my re-roll dice and and you just totally change the scale of the get that face of the game um and it leaves a bad taste in people's mouth but for the most part it's fun it's great uh, it was it's just something i wanted to avoid but like i said last year i didn't have a choice so i had to do it it's risk versus reward, and you know yep. you you know your community better than uh, than uh, I do. But you know, think about the ways you can you can do this. I've seen people like the Texas Masters guys. You know, one thing that they do in sometimes is they'll run like charity events. 
yep. uh, where, where you actually, uh, it's, it's a GT, it's a one day or a two day a grand tournament, but it's all raising money and you can sell re-rolls, you can sell, uh, you know, people who donate, you know, 20 bucks to the cause uh, can get, you know, an extra 100 points worth of models. So it doesn't yep. have to be this vanilla dry, uh, best of the best competitiveness. You could be doing it for a cause. You could Absolutely. be doing it to, to build a community. You could do it just to focus on that 90% of people who just want to have fun and, uh, you know, give people drink tokens or meal tokens and just whatever. I think that's yep. kind of like expanding people's horizon as it does. It's more than just fighting for first, second and third. And and so the charity thing is a good point because we have a lot of events that do charity and do it well. Steve Herner, who runs the Holy Wars events here, does a great job of that. And that's great. I, I specifically... With, with our event, we specifically was trying to avoid any charity events at all, any charity type stuff at all, just because, not that it's bad, we just feel that there's a lot of it. There was a lot of it out of a lot of our events. And and on the side, some people rumble, you know, grumble, you know, because you'd have to, people ask for a donation of a product, you know, so you bring some box of something you're not using, it's no big deal. You know, you buy dice, you know, for a reroll, you buy raffle tickets, whatever. You you choose your level of involvement. But just because we'd heard some people grumbling about that, and it was a minority, we just decided, you know what, we're just gonna we're gonna avoid that entirely. We're not gonna do that at our events because we don't think we have to. We think we can we can create a product that will sell that people wanna come. Uh, and that ultimately proved true for us. The the reason I bring that up is as a tournament organizer. I can do everything. I can add so much to my, my, my event and it's easy to get bloated. And yeah. I think that's the key why I wanted to bring that up was not because everyone should do a charity event. Uh, not everybody should but do it, a painting. It, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's about staying to your true north. Why am I setting this event up? And how do I make this event? If it is focused on charity, you focus on the charity event and then every decision you make yep. leads to how do I create the best charity event? If you are trying to build a community and you're trying to make sure that everyone has a great time, then that needs to be the start of your, your tree. And then you got every decision you make. And, you know, that might mean that you don't take the premier venue because that makes it very expensive and a new player is not willing to spend all their money on a, a high ticket price. Or you need to create value for money so that they feel like they're walking away and not just getting beaten by experienced players. Yep. Um I guess that's the kind of like the the starting decision tree we're talking about here. The venue kind of breaks off from that, and then things continue from there. Yes, yeah, I agree. And and uh, catering to new players is something that we've tried really, really hard to do. Is not not necessarily catering, but making our event a welcome environment for new players. Um, and I'm I'm personally big on that because my my special skill that I bring to the table isn't in the organizing, it's in the weekend of, um, because I just get to know people in this hobby. That's what I do. I, I love the people in this hobby, in this community. So I yeah, I do the same thing with everybody. I get to know them, I talk to them, I learn their name, that's really important to me. Um, and, and those are my skills, that's what I bring as part of the foundation for the event, you know, is, is basically I'm, I'm working the crowd. It it is in the hugs, Anthony. You're not wrong. Uh, everybody gets everybody gets a hug, even those uh, even those who might think otherwise. You know, unless you're unless you're determined that's not going to happen, you're probably going to get a hug. <laughs> you got a hug. 
get a hug. I did get a hug. It was, um, but I think that's 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 really good. It's understanding your strengths. And as a tournament organiser, you don't do this alone. And, you know, you do ask for support. And people are normally willing to help you either on the day, uh, in preparation. I've seen, you know, Chuck Moore, for example, when he was preparing for Nova, um, he got some people and said, hey, we're going to do a painting session today. Uh, who can come help me paint some terrain? I know the Measured Gaming Boys are for a tournament I'm going to next month. Same deal. A club night. They've gone, guys, we need to paint some terrain for an upcoming tournament. Who can help? Or people take some of that terrain to paint at home and bring in. It's not all on you. No. Uh, the community is willing to help. You just need to ask for help. I think that's something that people are uncomfortable with at times, like asking for help. That to me has been a lesson is to ask for more help and ask for it early because people want to see you be successful. Well, and I, I think staffing a tournament is important um, and is hard because because and I, I learned this lesson the first two years. Tom Tom's my silent partner, right? Tom is amazing. What Tom doesn't want to do in a tournament is what I need him to do, which is to sit there and wait for work. And that's, that's just not Tom. Tom wants to get up and socialize and wants to hang out with people. And so we, like we learned that, that we just, there was a learning curve for me was I was trying to get that kind of work out of him, but that's, that's not suited to him and his personality. Um, uh, where Kevin Fleming, who is, you know, where Tom is my silent partner, Kevin Fleming is our right-hand man. Um, Kevin is happy to sit at the desk and, and he knows that somebody needs to just be there and just wait. You take the score sheets, you answer questions. You know, he call, if there's a rules call, he'll deal with it or a call for me. You know, whatever's needed. But somebody has to do that that gross task of just sitting there and waiting for work at a tournament. And and based on the scale, it needs to be multiple somebodies if you have a bigger tournament. Um, and, and that is so hard to find, you know, and then you have to... But, you know, I, I don't expect anybody to do that for free. So that's part of my then part of my tournament cost is is compensation. Um, so like for for Kevin, you know, I've tried to get his hotel room when I can or give his son, his son usually plays. So his son gets free entrance into the tournament, for whatever I can. I try to make it worth his while. Um, and he he kindly donates his time. Uh, and we work it out every year. But um, he's amazing. I couldn't do it this without him. And he helps with the terrain and just. And as Brendan said, you know, you've got to have a trustworthy crew. Um, I was really lucky last Sydney GT to have Liam uh, Burnett Blue, my, uh, my one of my two ICs, has been a, you know, a long friend of mine. Um, Liam, when I ran Sydney GT, the last one, 100 players, um, I'm, I'm a very logical project manager. So on the day, I'm really in the weeds making sure that every everything's running smoothly. And... Whenever someone come up as a, asking for a rule question, I'm so in the weeds of of the, the logistics of running the running the event, making sure that everything's on time, the data entry, making just like literally logistics. And like for me, like it, like it would break me. Yep. So Liam, Liam jumping at all those rules questions just freed me up to do what I did best, and yep. allowed him to do what he did best. And uh, together as a team, that went really well. And if you're not a social That's person, huge. if you're if you're more of an introvert rather than extrovert, having someone who is greeting, shaking hands, walking the floors to make sure people are having a good time, uh, making sure that rules disputes, and I know that's a big one, at least in my community, people don't like asking for help from a tournament organiser. Uh, they're very, very rare to ask for questions. 
and walking the floor, people will then pull you inside and say, I've got this challenge or, hey, make sure you know that, you know, you are present at the event. So having staff, people you can trust and different skills, it, it, I've found is incredibly important. Yeah. I, and, and you hit on something there that, you know, proactively rules judging um, through, you know, that's not something we necessarily do. And we just, we set expectations. If you need us, come over, we'll come over and we'll make a decision. I'm going to, I ask the same word, the same, every time I ask a question of GW, I get, I get said, what do the words say? And that's the question I ask when anybody asks me a question is what do the words say? And we look, pull up the book and we look at the, and it's literally, I, I just try to remove myself as far as possible because every one of these, you know, is people is my friend. So, you know, and it and when you're on getting called to a top table for a rules dispute that may decide the tournament, you know, and um, you know, uh all of our tournaments have been won by Relian, Brad Schwant, who's a good personal friend of mine, you know, but you know, that last year he I had to go solve one of his uh, a, a rules disagreement at his table and it was it's very that's for me was one of the worst moments i've had to had to go deal with was because okay you know i i i have to make a fair and impartial rules call and i we did we went through it and we just went through it line by line and figured it out but it's you know it's super important to me to a make the right call but to b make sure that that everybody in the situation knows that it was impartial mm -hmm. uh, because i am impartial um, actually, I wanted him to lose, but that's neither here nor there. So I love you, man. Sorry. But, Sorry. you know, just. Yeah, it's, it, a really, it's a really good point. Like, you don't want to perceive to be favorable yeah, uh, because that's when you lose credibility very quickly and, uh, and your reputation will get damaged. So, obviously, sometimes a rules decision will appear to be, uh, you know, favorable, but I think it's also talking through the process. And for me, whenever I've had to do a rules dispute, I always come to the table and first understand both sides. It's like, cool, what's the arguments? What's the situation? Where are you guys at? And then try to help guide the right decision. I don't think it's like walking up to the table going, you're right, you're wrong, and then walk that, away. It's like just understanding where they're at. That's key too, because they're looking at the trees and you're looking at the forest. So you, you come on, guys, tell me what you know. You, they, they're telling you the end and you got to go back about 10 steps to the beginning most times to figure out, you know, how did we get to where we're at? What's really happening? Everybody, you know, if they're if people are upset because that happens, um, you know, thankfully, we've we've never had any we've never had any nasty disagreements, but we're very passionate about this hobby in this game. And it's easy to be excited. Um, so, you know, so I have been to tables where people are excited um, and everybody's respectful and courteous. And we just would take that we work it, walk it back. We figure it out and we work it through. The reason why I'm so proactive, and I don't know what if this is like in your communities, Domus, and I don't know if other people who are watching this have the same kind of challenges. But I know in Australia, at least, this is not common just in my events, but I think generally in Australia, um, people don't like calling over the tournament organiser and they don't like having these rule dispute. I don't know if it's because people are, aren't confrontational. I don't know if people uh, don't want to get hit with a sports score issue or they don't want to appear to be a problem player. But what I find is there are times that players don't ask me for help. And what ends up happening is someone has a bad experience on the table or they feel like they've been cheated or something happens, you know, uh, an interaction that didn't, didn't get uh, mitigated by me. And then it results 
with bitching at the end yep. or people are talking in their little group chats like, oh, this person cheated, they did this, they should have done this. And I often find that if they would have just engaged with me earlier, if they would have sent me a private message on Facebook like, hey, Anthony, can you just come over to my table, even if they didn't want to appear to be causing an issue. And I think this is where tournament points being tied to sports scores is a bad thing because if I raise an issue, my opponent's just going, oh, he's a terrible person, zero sports scores or one sports score. Um, I, I, I want to get that as quick as possible. Yep. So I think the walking the floor, talking to players, not just letting them know the, how long is left in the round, but actually just checking in, watching games, uh, being available and letting them know that uh, there are tournament organisers there, whether it's with a lanyard or a certain coloured shirt, um, helps people quickly identify who is in the team and who can they can pull uh, when when required. No, I think it's awesome. Uh, it, like I said, it's not something we do just because we run a skeleton crew. Uh, for 115 people, I had three staff, you know, so it's we do what we can. Um, and we always hear some of that grumbling, you know, that, that kind of stuff always happens. But for us, the, the community understands if they have a rules dispute, they they can either sort it out themselves and live with that or they can call me. And it's not there's no deduction. Um, I think it's safe to say in our community, it's it's OK to call the TO over and it's never it's never a problem but some of the newer players don't because they don't know the etiquette. So and there, that's a, that's a learning curve, that's a training thing. Um and and we talk about I try to have a little meeting before the tournament and it's the deal. You know, we talk about um, our mission statement and our mission statement is to have an event that everybody can have fun. Full stop, you know. But it's also like some some people, I could tell you that that our first our first year, we have some people now that are cornerstone members of our community. That my first year was their first tournament. Um, so we we try to remember that, and we try to make sure that we make a home for those new players every year um, and a welcoming space. And we try to also educate them on on all the various etiquette levels because there's so many, you know, and it's it's a process. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's mostly as the new people, like like you know, the experienced people who have been around for a while, will have no issue calling over. Uh, you know, I, I remember myself versus Matt Campbell at the Australian Masters. Uh, we had a rules dispute, and we call over the TO. You know, two players playing at the top level. Um, no, no issue. But you're right. I think as newer people coming in, maybe if they're playing someone who might have influence or maybe has, um, you know, experience, reputation, they don't want to be challenging that person because, yep. you know, they're, they're whatever it might be, which kind of segues into what I wanted to ask you about, which was communication. Now, one way I've been trying to help with those types of conversations is being accessible through things like Facebook. I use I use Facebook, especially Facebook events. Uh, to communicate a lot to my players. Uh, I communicate the round. I communicate any special rules. I'll communicate, I communicate. I'm very heavily communicating on digital mediums and yep. being accessible through digital as well as face-to-face. -face. But talk to me about how you communicate with your players, whether it's going to be promoting the event, but then also managing them on the day, either after, before, in sure. between. So so all, our event lives in Facebook. Um a lot of people have developed a website, and and but I just decided that I could do a Facebook group and we do it on Facebook. Um, it does present a unique challenge, and then I have a couple people who are very anti-Facebook and won't use it. 
but I, I keep a list of those people. Uh, there's two that I know of right now and I get their emails and I just, I email them. We also, I also promote on Twitter um, because I'm, I'm a big Twitter user. Twitter, we kind of took over Twitter at some point as our place to just kind of hang out and talk as war gamers. And it's great. That's what I use it for. I don't follow many celebrities. Um, I generally try to stay out of politics. The recent events have made that difficult, but I'm back out of politics. Uh, but <laughs> recent events in America, but I'm back out of politics and it, it just, Twitter needs to be about gaming for me. Um, so prior to the event, we do everything through Facebook and through Twitter um, and then through word of mouth. So a, a big thing at all of our events that we all do here in the Midwest is whenever your event and it's the last game is over and the organizer tabulating and figuring out all the totals and who won what, uh, we typically open the floor and anybody who wants to get up and talk about an event has the space to do so. So so we we open the floor to those people. And it doesn't have to be Warhammer, though it typically is, but people have that minute to get up and tell the crowd um, you know, about their event. So word of mouth is huge. And and word of mouth really is the biggest advertiser because, you know, uh, the the Wisconsin club, you know, started out small. It was like four guys, and now it's like 12. You know, where the Detroit club started out like at four or five also, and now it's like 25 plus, I think. They're crazy. The the crowd that comes, you know, the we got this group now in Indy that's grown up and are bringing new people in constantly. So, so you know, people bring their friends and it's like, hey, you got to come to this event with me. It's so much fun. And, and word of mouth is huge. And that's how uh, our event scaled. We've, you know, if I think of PlanCon, right, 50 players. Yep. If it was 50 players have a great time and tell one person to come, that's 100 players. That's Correct. literally what we went from 50 to 100 to then 200. So then if that 100 players tells one person to come, we're at 200. Yep. So that's where you got to think about how do you create a great event that people then rave about? Like they're sharing photos. And um, one of the ways I incentivize social media is I created last year no, two years ago, I created the AOS Influencer Award, and yep. I actually, I actually said to guys, you know, um, use this hashtag uh, on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and if you post your whip photos or your uh, photos of the game, your videos, you know, promoted any social media before or after, I'd actually review that and actually give you the social, you know, the AOS Influencer Award, and that just gets you helps you get your word of the mouth, and and people are seeing how great of a time and. They're missing out and they should come to events. Oh yeah, it's huge. I mean that I got the biggest the biggest single compliment um I think I ever received was was after the 2019 event in um uh, a guy who I'd had uh, who's a great member of the community and uh is Chris Brosca from the Skull Bros podcast. He and I had a we when AOS landed, we all kind of jumped into Infinity for a little bit. We're playing Infinity. You know, I had a really unfortunate game of Infinity. All of my stuff dropped out of the sky, blew him off the table. He didn't get a play. It was zero fun. NP, you know, just a negative play experience. So we had, you know, we had some this kind of dark cloud. It was totally fun for him. He made sure I knew I got it. And it was a learning experience for me. We, you know, we moved on. But after that 2019 event, he came up and, um, and told me that that it felt like the summer Wapaka. Uh, Wapaka is the the event that the Point Hammer guys run, and it is the holy grail to me of events, and it and it always will be. It's not. It's no more. Um, but they created such a unique thing 
you know, so to get that compliment was huge. And, and that was another thing that when I made my event was, you know, my first thought was, how do I make it like Wapaka? My second thought was, I can't, so I'm not going to try. So I, you know, because they, they did Friday night, we had a mustache contest and, you know, it's, there was, there, <laughs> there was all kinds of shenanigans. It's Wisconsin in January, it's cold and there's cheap beer. Um, and we were young and dumb, and it was a lot of fun. Pretty sure, I, I, in an old Warpacka rule uh, uh, players pack, I might have saw something about not peeing on the snow or not going out. Yeah. And I remember yeah. there was dodgy stuff, and I think I might have even seen something like "Don't bring a real turtle to the table uh, yeah. for your dinner." Like there was some bizarre stuff, but um, I think there, I think that's a really good point, Domus. Is that um, borrow from the events that you're inspired by? Uh, don't try to recreate. Uh, but if someone's doing something really well, it's like, how do I bring that lesson and how do I share that experience in my own way? And, and I think you just have to let it like for me, I don't think I did. I don't think I did anything special to make the event get that praise personally. Like the beast idea, like the beast idea was great. Sure. Yes. The painting competition was really the key draw to that, in my opinion, but but what I feel like I try to do is I try to get out of the way. Um, I try to get out of the way of the event and not let me and my ego, you know, and I'm a tournament or I try to get out. None of that. I don't want to do any of that. I'm not that guy. I try to get out of the way and just let it happen organically, um, you know, and not in any way, shape or form you know, try to influence it to go that way. If it happens, it happens and you just get lucky. I mean, that was the year that there's a funny story about that year. We, so I had a ton of prize support and it was all out on a table and I took pictures of every person we gave a prize to as they came up and got it. And I missed one person and I didn't realize it. And I thought somebody had stolen prize from our prize table. And, and I was, darn near in tears and after you know a couple of hours of research and and trying to figure it out i addressed the tournament and just in very much in my dad voice and was like i don't know what's happened but i'm so disappointed that this is and it turned out it was all a mistake i've never been more pleased to be wrong in my life but that that was the year that the guy said it was that great you know where, where we had that happen and i had to dad voice the entire tournament thinking somebody had lifted something and and I've never been happier to be wrong. Um, so yeah. I think that's that's the key. We we talked earlier about tournament organizing being 70 to 80 percent of what happens before the event. Yeah. It's about the tickets, it's about the players pack, it's about the the prize support, the award, it's about the setup, it's everything that leads up to the day. And then once you have kicked off, you just get out of the way. Uh, yeah. You take photos and videos of people playing. You're you punching the scores and, and move on. Well, you don't even – like, like there's so many great tournament softwares now that you can get people to self-report. You don't need to be the, the, the data entry monkey anymore. I, I have not evolved to that yet, but that's on the books. But it's there. I've, I've recently uh, – because one, We've talked about it quite a bit, actually. We have. We have. Uh, and the reason I go to I, – I get 
players to uh, so tabletop to is one that i use a lot uh australian-based software it's web-based so anyone can uh can use it and one of the cool things about my venue is it has free wi-fi so last year no two years ago uh, last year was cancelled but the year before i had a couple of new zealanders come over so they didn't have australian internet so the wi-fi in the room allowed them to participate and what i love about tabletop to is that uh, both players put in their score or one person can put in their score and then the, the opponent can validate or put in their own scores. And if the data matches, I don't have to do anything. Nice. But if the data doesn't match, then I need to in, jump in and go, well, what happened? Uh, you know, is there a difference in the kill points or sure. the interpretation of I killed a battalion or I didn't kill a battalion? Uh, but most times people just like, uh, will self-manage and it means that I'm not entering in data, stressing in that last 30 minutes before the round ends and it allows me to do other things. So, uh, and it no, means like, no fat fingers, like if fat well, fingers happen, it's not on you. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, and, and you know, it's all kind of as much as I can automate as possible. Uh, and I know, you know, there's best coast pairings, down under pairings. There are other different softwares, uh, but for me, tabletop TO because it's web-based. Uh, That's the do. one I was looking at based on your recommendation actually. So, but, but you know, then 2020 happened and you know, all that kind of got sidelined. Uh, you had asked about communication day of, and I, the communication on the day of, we got wickedly sidetracked. Um, on the day of, I primarily use Twitter. And I use Twitter because I use WarScore. Um, so with WarScore, I can post the pairings. So I post them on Twitter. Um, and I have a mic and I announce everything because we we don't, the one thing we didn't do with, um, with the scenarios was I don't tell people what scenarios they're going to play. I give them a pool of eight to nine, and I say, you will be playing of these nine scenarios. But then there's, they don't know when they're going to play what. And so I announce it before the round, as well as the realm, um, and then the realm rule as well. That was something that we did. That was how we managed all that. So we would announce at the start of every round, here's your scenario, here's your realm, and here's your rule, um, your realm rule, and that's what's in use. So no random, any of that stuff. Okay. And it's interesting because I, uh, so in Australia, what we do is um, we have a culture. Uh, I try, I told this to do this to Alex and Alex uh, hard <laughs> pushed me back on this idea. But uh, in Australia, one thing that we do is we have a hard rule that players must submit their army list to the tournament organizer two weeks in advance. We do that, so that too. One of the reasons is it allows the tournament organizers to validate and make sure that lists are accurate. But two, if you've ever watched any Australian content creators, again, myself, Doom and Darkness, Heralds of War, um, one thing that we get to do is we get to do a pre-event stream where we can do list discussions and predictions and we can go through people's lists. And it's become a very important part of our culture where we can now start seeing everyone's list in advance. And, you know, every time you put the match up, you know, you can then look at your opponent and, you know, groups come together and like, oh, this is what you got to do. Or don't, you know, got to beat this person and this is how we're going to handle it. Um, but we, it's, did and, that, we did that one year. Um and and my takeaway was that it was great for the competitive guys and it was awful for everybody else because people would walk up the table and know how to beat their list you know because because they had prepped because the competitive guys had done the prep work and it's not a negative that's just the way they approach the game they'd done that prep work they knew those lists inside out so they walked up to the table they're like oh you're this guy boom and i know how to take apart your list 
Now, they would have figured it out potentially anyway because it's just the way those guys are. I was going to say, if these guys are practicing 30, 40 matches prior to a big GT, yep. Yep. they're all over how Seraphon yep. works. It, it, yep. No surprise. Like, oh, you're running chain shows. Cool. I know how to handle this. Yeah. So I just, I I did it that, I did it 2019. I haven't done it again since. I, I raised this idea because being at Adepticon uh, and I watched poor Alex uh, you know, I don't think round one kicked off for a good 30 minutes or 40 minutes because he was just sitting there with a line of people ready to, to register and submit their list. And then I watched four or five people at the TO table then validating those lists. And what happens if my list is invalid? Uh, are you going to pull models off me? Uh, do I even have the additional models to to sort out? So either way, you know, whether you like the idea or not, that's just another way you can manage the event. Uh, it's working well in our culture. Um, at, at um, we do it at all of our events except for Adepticon, and it's just because of the scale of Adepticon. And and the other thing is, there's there, Adepticon brings this unique thing that no other event has, and that's because Adepticon is a five day party, for lack of a better term. There's all this stuff to do, so we could have 250 people signed up for Saturday Sunday tournament. Saturday morning. 250 people do not show up. They got too drunk last night. They decided, they decided, forget this. I'm doing something else. I remember between game one, game two, I think there was at least 20 people that dropped. I think they must have either not, they, they just want to go do some painting workshops and things. So I guess some people, uh, as soon as they lose a game, will just drop. They're just out. So, so Adepticon brings that X. That's why we don't, that's why Alex has never done it. I, I took over the Adepticon. I'm the overlord. I don't actually run any of the tournaments. I, but what I did, um, what I, what I had intended to do for 2020 was I just picked people to run the tournaments um, that I knew from the community because I'm because I'm so close to it, so then I just liaise basically them to the Adepticon guys and back and forth. Um, so we, you know, I picked some people to run the events, but I wasn't going to run any of them personally, but be hands on. And that that's one of the many things we, you know, how we're going to do this. You know, this isn't great because it's not great having people like holding up the event to wait to check in is not great. But how do you do it? And and there's so many so many choices there and that's just part of the process but i think adepticon is unique because it does bring that that the thing that no you don't get that anywhere else because if you sign up for a two-day event and you pay that money and you go to the hotel you're going but there's so much other stuff to do at adepticon it's real easy to just skip the tournament well one, one thing that is fascinating as well with something like a convention so adepticon is a convention my event is a standalone there's not a lot of conventions at least in australia and i know england doesn't really have conventions but the other benefit as well is um and i think i might have been Brendan Elnick, uh, in a previous podcast had mentioned that if you go to a convention like adepticon and let's say you missed out on a ticket sale you normally have a wait list of people who are waiting to get into the event. And if you have dropouts or if you have people just not rock up and register, you've now got a pool of candidates who are ready to play round one. But at most GTs, that's not possible. No one's rocking no. up to my venue waiting <laughs> to, hoping to get a ticket. Can I uh, get in? Yeah, like that, but like that's you taking advantage of a unique situation. I think as tournament organiser, you are going to find yourself uh, in, in, in situations where you can leverage your environment. So uh, you have some pros and you have some cons and yep. um, and much like me. So 
um, I think as a TO, it's just like just just knowing your surroundings and and doing the best thing you can. Um, but for me, like a, uh, a like I use I use Facebook a lot because I post a lot of like uh, we announce our rounds. Um, so once people submit their lists, we tell people the five games. So in order, we'll tell them uh, because now you can't tailor your list; it's it's, it's all submitted. Sure. Um, so we'll announce that, but, you know, for me, it's communication, whether it's, you know, how much time is left. Um, I do a lot of r lucky door prizes during the event. So I'll do um, little raffles. I'll do, you know, any, anything that people need to know. I'm always constant on Facebook, just smashing it. Um, so, so I don't because I let people change their lists, but, but that's how we do sports. Uh, sports for us is, is really what we call etiquette. Um, so, so there is no in-game player sports um the only thing that the players do is they vote for their bet their favorite sportsman at the end you know out of the five who was my best game but all the all the sports points are earned through etiquette points turning your list on time bringing a beast the year we had the beast um you know uh, just doing all the things that uh, bringing all your materials having your dice having your you know all the things that a gamer is supposed to do those are how you earn points and if you if you retract your list you lose an etiquette point but that's why i don't give the scenarios away till the day of because people do that and there are there are people that i think would take advantage and try to to gain that high ground of knowing the scenarios retract their list and then resubmit based on what they know yeah, yeah. But either, look, either way, like I think we're just showing off a couple yeah. of different options. It's options. That's right. Uh, you just you make choices and, and move forward. Look, uh, you know, I know I've studied so many players' packs, and I don't think anyone's got it right. And no. the reason for it is because there is no one way to do this. No, um, so. Cherry pick. Cherry pick. Talk to, so we talk Facebook is, is great. Uh, you know, Discord's are, are very useful. Twitter's yep. can be useful. Again, I think just finding ones. WhatsApp is another great way people have been doing it. Either way, however you want to run your tournament, uh, find a, a communication that's best suited to them uh, and use it. And I think, you know, just multiple ways, you know, making sure that, you know, um, I'm really lucky. I don't know. I've got I, at my venue, I've got uh, big projectors as well. So I've got two or three projectors so I can have a laptop so nice. I can stream the, the time left in the round. We do I, that too. I can put up messages, I can put up uh, the scenarios, I can do whatever I can. But that's just another way that I can communicate with my players on the day, in addition to Facebook, in addition to uh, verbal announcements, uh, looking at different ways I can just communicate. Yep. Yeah, and we do like, we print and post uh, round matchups and stuff like that, you know, so they're online fast, or you can wait for us to print them and post them slow, you know, and, and we, do, uh, we do both. And one, one other way, you know, one, one other reason I really love Tabletop TO is because it can be self-managed. Uh, people can already look at the rounds. So the minute I tell them that the draw's up, they don't have to wait for me to post the draw. They could be looking themselves and they nice. can self-manage. So they're, awesome. like, they're already like, their armies are walking to a table. Uh, and they don't have to worry about me drawing the round, posting it, announcing it. Uh, sure. So, you know, any, any way you can free up time. It feels like we're in the Stone Age by comparison. <laughs> I like just whatever works with your community um <laughs> but we talked we talked I, I talked a little bit earlier about some of the prizes that you give away at the start and i think for me 
I always want to create value for money. I, I try to, uh, when I run things at a local level, I'd like to try to give away something, you know, small tokens or like I said, combat gauges or, you know, uh, 3D printed objective markers. It might be bundling in uh, the, the the last events that I'm running. I have lunch included. So I get like a gourmet lunch, you know, gourmet burger with, you know, dr drinks and chips or whatever. But how do you, how do you, distribute your prize pool do you have uh prizes or uh entry tokens or things that you give away either at registration do you put all your prize support at the uh the top you know first second and thirds sure. or do you distribute it during the during the round like have you what have you seen and what do you do so so it's funny you mentioned lunch the first the first two years we serve we included lunch and um one of our local guys who actually used to run a tournament that we kind of, I won't say we replaced, but he got out when AOS drops. And so, uh, you know, we kind of replaced his, but he's a chef. So he would come in and cook lunch and it was great. We loved that. But when we grew, when we grew to a hundred, you know, that was no longer feasible. The vent, the venue we were in had on site. So it just, um, but what we do now for prize support is so with the, with your, with your entry fee, I give everybody, I have done this now for two, maybe three years. I have custom engraved um, combat gauges and they're not, they're not really combat gauges as they are measuring sticks. And it's a three inch, a six inch and a nine inch. And it's about, you know, this long and it's really thin. I don't know if I have one. I don't they, have one nearby. Are they acrylic? Are they metal? Yeah, I know they're, they're acrylic and they're engraved and they say Midwest meltdown in the year and they have hashtags for the inch marchers. Um, so we give everybody three. We give them a set of three, six, and nine. And then, you know, the nine inch is great because it's the charge. The three inches is the pile. And it's just, uh, it's something that I got at the Face Hammer GT um, that they did and made out of wood. And so when I found out I could do it out of acrylic here, I gave it, I, we did it now, we give it to all of our players. And they're just, they're so useful. And acrylic are quite cheap as well. So if you're thinking about, you know, how do you create value? Uh, one thing is I always got like, um, a bunch of my events that I've attended always give me like little acrylic objective markers, just little sure. little circles, and they're not expensive to make. You can get like them laser cut. Um, I think from memory, it cost me maybe a dollar, uh, two dollars at absolute most out of my players, uh, my, my, my funds, uh, to give people, you know, the three, six and the nine or uh, yeah. the, the objective. So that's a, that's a cool little way that you could create value at least when the player registers. Yeah, so that's that's our giveaway, um, and then I also get dice made, but we sell the dice. Um, typically, we haven't. I don't think we've given away the dice, but we might have. I just can't recall. But typically, we've sold the dice, um, and that first, like I said, the first year we did a reroll. Uh, for 2020, we weren't doing that. We did get dice made and we sold them, but I, I brought the cost down. It was a very reasonable cost to just cover the cost of the dice. Um, so as far as prizes go, though. Um, because like I said, we talked a little bit earlier about an, a negative experience. I, nice, Anthony. <laughs> and I, can, can I just pause for one second, Domus? Yeah. Somebody, somebody might be listening to this going, how do I make dice? Um, now, this is obviously not sponsored, but is there any advice that you would have on if I wanted to get custom dice, where do you source your dice? or Chessex. Chessex, yeah. Chessex.com. Uh, very reasonable. You can just email them. They want some artwork, and he wanted it in a specific format. I think it was like a vector format or something like that. Um, 
there's certain files that they can yeah. transfer. And, um, and and he gave me a quote, and we made it work out. So one of the one of the actually it's an interesting point you say that one of the the hidden staff members I have, if you will, is um, a bunch of people in your community are potentially graphic artists. Um, so there's a guy who is a graphic artist who is kind of out of Age of Sigmar. He's playing 40K with his boys because his boys are at that age and he's having fun, but he does our graphic design work. And so, you know, I pay him, I send him models, whatever he wants, you know, we work it out and I pay him for his services and he created our logo and he did the vector stuff for us for the dice. Uh, and he does our designs for our trophies. Um, so he works with me every year and we do that and we work it out. And that's, you know, it's an important cost when you factor in your tournaments is, is that artwork. Uh, you know, that, that stuff is not easy or free or everybody would do it. So, um, but anyway, back to prizes. So the way that I do prizes um, was developed from a lot, a lot of years of seeing big prize awards being given and incentivizing some less than stellar play. Um, so I didn't, my goal was not to incentivize less than stellar play. Um, I, I wanted to incentivize competitiveness. I, so so my approach was, was I wanted to make the nicest trophies I could with a couple of rules um, because I've, back in the day, I'd won quite a few trophies, primarily for painting, but I don't like big trophies. Painting, painting, not game. I don't like big trophies. So I kept my trophies small. It was like, um, we kept our trophies small. They're like a nine by six acrylic block. It's carved with meltdown and says the award name in it. It's really cool. It's great display, show off material, but it's small. It's portable. If you fly, it's no big deal to take home with you. Um, so we wanted our trophies to be small. But from the prize perspective, I don't actually give any prizes to my winners. Um uh, there is one more trophy I'll talk about. I'll come back to you. But I, for our prize pool, um, now the first year, like I said, we just had Tom and I's, but we later, um, there's a there's a guy who's real popular in the Midwest. Where most of us buy our miniatures from him. He's Mini Stomp. Um, and that's who I buy all my miniatures from. And he and I got to talking, and he now sponsors the event. Um and and donates a ton of prizes. We also buy prizes from him as well with any extra funds. In addition to that, um, Patrick Brindleson and his family own a game store in Minnesota called The Source, and he brings product every year and donate it. Um, this last year, we had actually individuals bringing product. Uh, Travis Winter brought product, and he works for Atlas Games, which is board and card games. They did um, Lunch Money. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lunch Money. Um, but but so we've got people now bringing prize support. So what I do is I just take all the prize support and we do door prizes. And I throughout the course of the event, I get a random name generator and, and I roll the dice. And if it's you, you win it. You get a come up and you get a pick from the table of prizes what you want. So I'm not I'm not choosing for anybody. And there's there's of course there's big prizes. We get keeper of secrets. You know, we get the big box prizes. We get the small box prizes, you know, whether they be tokens or cards or objective markers. So you know it, it always works out the big ones go first and the little ones go last. But that's just the way of the world. Um, but that's what we do is is we random it off so everybody has a chance to get something. That the big thing that I was planning for 2020 is I was going to the last the the first prize to be drawn was going to be the last prize to be given, but I was going to paint Illuminath Army and give it away. 
Um, so that was, and I'm still going to do that whenever we have our next event. That's going to be, it's going to be the first one drawn. Nobody's going to know who wins it, but they won't win any other prizes all weekend. So, but it'll be the last one giving it away. And they'll win, now it may not be Lumineth. It may be something else more current, but that's the plan. Is I, I've always wanted to give away a painted army. So that's the plan um, for that. But that's that's my approach to prizes and, and every the community loves it. Uh, the, the guys, the guys that win based on gaming or painting, are happy with their plaque and their trophy and bragging rights, and that's enough. And and nobody is salty about not getting prizes because because the prize pool is open to everybody. It just it's random. That's the lesson that I learned in my first couple of years. I think my first two years, I tried to make those first, second, and third best in each of the grand alliances really weighty. I wanted them to be aspirational. Um, aspirational awards but what I quickly learned was that players majority of my players weren't coming to win the prizes they were just coming to hang out with their mates they yep. were coming out play two days of Warhammer and if I think about the bell curve you know the fat middle majority of my players were coming just to have a good time they wanted to win they wanted some good games but they weren't trying to they weren't trying to go five and oh or four and one so I quickly realized that putting my, my majority of my prize support in those first, second, and third, and, you know, subsequent prizes, I was better off putting it in the middle, but putting it in, as you've said, accessible to everyone. And one thing that I have done for the last couple of years has worked really well, and some people I've seen have borrowed my idea, at least it was one thing I could contribute to the tournament organizer community, is I do, um, rap, uh, like, I stole an idea off Steve Wren, so Steve Wren used to run the narrative achievements at Blood and Glory. Yep. He's now the, the Warhammer World event, event. organizer. Yep. And he, he had this checklist, which were negative achievements. And um, basically his narrative event was based off positive and negative achievements. I stole his negative achievements idea, but I put prizes behind it. So I would announce in round one that the first three people to fail a three-inch charge would come up to me and grab a prize. Sure. And round two might be the first person to call, uh, try to cast a spell with a double one. And then kind of, I would also use random generating prize tools or, uh, you know, you can put all the players' names in a, in yep. a little uh, uh, software and it'll kind of generate winners. But having prizes distributed through the entire uh, tournament. So people are always kind of getting those little spikes of, yay. It's um, fun. It's fun to hear your name called and come up and get a prize. I, I think one of my last events, I might have given a prize away to the first person who who, who registered. Oh, sometimes awesome. people, people always like want to leave it to the very end to register, and it causes me headaches. And the, you know, the round sure. starting early, um, I like to give away all my prizes as well. Um, uh, sorry, I give. I like to give away a bulk of my prizes at the end. So uh, while I try to wrap up my tournament, I I ask my players could if they could contribute and help pack down, put terrain in boxes, pack down my tables. Uh, move them to a van if I have to move out of the venue. Um, and some people, what, what you know, can't do that, and that's okay. But for the people who stay around and help, um, I will then draw the prizes So uh, as a bit of a thank you. But sure. I think as well, recognising your staff and, um, and having some prizes to them because they are giving up one or two days of their weekend, oh, yeah. uh, not playing Warhammer, but doing but, Warhammer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, 
the other thing that I did was not not a prize, but it was a trophy. So, so again, my big push starting from 2018 was to was my first year. It was like great. It's like okay, but we need to focus on the hobby more and and push the hobby side more. So that the SCGT, which I've talked about multiple times, they've always had a word an award which I thought was the coolest award ever, and it's the coolest Army Award. Um, so I. I just absolutely 100% lifted that. And I just said, we're going to do a Coolest Army Award. Um, and it is, in my mind, it's the top prize of the event. And it's the one I do last. Um, it's it's above best overall. It's, it's in my opinion, it's the greatest award that I can give. And, and my judges and my staff have input, but I pick the Coolest Army. Um, and it, to me, it's the single biggest honor I think I can give. And so I... Um, uh, the bear from Point Hammered, I, I've reached out to him. He custom makes us a shield that we use for a trophy. And it's 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 basically a bunch of wood and acrylic that's laser cut. And it's a it's a small shield, you know, about yay big. Um, but it's awesome. And it's, you know, it's like the first year we did, because Deepkin were new, we did a Deepkin shield. And then Slanesh were out, so we did a Slanesh shield the second year, which was 2019. Uh, so two guys have won this, and and the only rule is that you cannot win if you've won it with an army. You can never win it again with that army, because I don't. There's no. There won't be any repeats. The guys that won can win again as long as they bring a new army. So I try to encourage and enforce, you know, keeping them creative and not winning the same year over and over and over. Yeah, there comes a point where um, you've got you don't want to retire someone's army, but when they are when they've won an award, you don't want them going around the circuit just winning all the awards and they come back and you know two years later that you know and kudos yeah. for them to having an amazing army, but it is demoralizing to everyone else. Where it is, you know, and and you want to reward them, but you're right, it, you know, it just I I want to stimulate creativity, not stifle. One, one, one way that I do painting awards is, um, so two years ago, so my, my Sydney GT, I reached out to a former Golden Demon winner. Now, unfortunately, Australia hasn't had a Golden Demon since like 2010 or 2012. Our, our games days have been over. But I've reached out to some professional painters and I, I basically split up my painting award into two categories. I had best painted and that would be officially judged by a legit painting person and then i had coolest army which was player voted yep. and i that, that kind of allowed them to contribute but at the same time the people who because the challenge with painting awards is sometimes it's the it's the popular vote and i am not the person who can talk about the the technical ability of osl and you know the the highlighting and the blending and getting down to the very fine detail of you know technical painting so I, again i reached out to community members and sure. found someone who had that skill and i bring them into to kind of judge the the, the technical aspect because there are some people who want to judge that but there's some people who are like just uh there's a guy like ben spinetti in my community who does crazy deepkin stuff? Like he made um, this really cool, like low tan bar, and you know, like just nice. absolutely like that, that's not that's not technically brilliant, but it was that's cool. so cool. Yeah, absolutely. Great painter, don't get me wrong, but like if you had like Golden Demon come in, they wouldn't go. No, this is not that's, the best painted. So that's coolest army is that it's not necessarily the technically best, and we have in America we do it a little differently. Like I give out a best painted award that's based on technical merit. Um, that me and the judges pick. Now, I, I, I feel like I can personally make that kind of, of judgment call, so I have no problem doing that. We also have a player's choice 
So we let the room pick their favorite. So we do both. I pick a technical one, the room picks their favorite, and then I pick my favorite, which is the coolest army award. But then, so then we brought that down. We did that for the beast. The year we had the beast, we had those same layers. And I was going to do that for the war bands. You know, we were going to have those layers so I can just tack on more hobby awards. Um, you know, and we, we took some inspiration from, from Brendick and Brendan Melnick. And we had a, we had a, uh, we were going to do like a most unique, he calls it Sigmar hard mode, but we call it a little different. It's basically doing the best you can with the worst possible list, you know, just bringing something dumb to the tournament and achieving success. I stole that idea from you. And, uh, so I obviously stole it from Brendan because one thing I liked, there was an award and I think it was basically like an army, I can't remember exactly how you called it, but basically it was about an army that you shouldn't shouldn't do that well or is like not like a top-tier meta army that does three and two. So yeah. someone does, you know, and I think that's part of the reward, right? Sylvaneth, Legions of Nagash, um, they're two examples of armies that probably won't, it's a very hard win for them. And if some Sylvaneth player goes three wins at a tournament, then they should be up for a category award because that is yeah. an achievement in itself. It is. Uh, probably harder than a, a Seraphon player going 5-0. and So, like, I want to call that out as well. Yep. So I love we, that idea. We also did best overall, you know, best in each Grand Alliance. Now, my, my personal, um, except for player's choice... Players and players are in coolest army. Players are not eligible to win multiple awards, so you would win the highest award available to you. But so um, the best overall doesn't win the best in his faction, even though he clearly was the best in his grand alliance. I like to spread the wealth. So so if he if best overall is playing chaos, the next best chaos player gets best chaos grand alliance. And by now, the way, Pack. If people are interested to learn more more about Domus's Plays Pack, in the uh, just episode description, I've got the pack for uh, 2019, uh, 2020, which was the Underworld's Warband version, uh, as well as the painting criteria. And I think this is uh, as well as uh, being a you know being a tournament organizer is about being objective. Uh, that means you know if you're going to do sports score or sports etiquette, don't just say to a player how would you rank your opponent out of zero to five? Because that's not objective. But having, you know, five criterias of um, would you play this player again or did they turn up on time? Were their dice rolls clear? Um, did they start the round, um, you know, like did they dick around on their on their deployment or some type yeah. of like measurable, you know, were their rules clear? You know, having something measurable and tangible. And here is another example, you know, um, uh, was there minimal conversions? Uh, you know how you know edge highlighting. You know is the force cohesive? Uh, you know all these different things. You know was there freehand? Was it smooth blending? Simple ways that you can you can be very clear on managing and measuring best painted or a, a painting criteria. So while you have this up, I'd love to talk about it because I'm I'm super proud of this. Um, this is this is something I I helped Adepticon for years with painting, and and so this kind of follows their lead, and that there's there's numerous points you can earn, but we've capped it out at 25. So you might be able to earn 30 35 points total, but you don't have to earn every point to get the max points. So there when we made this. I had a couple of goals because of the attendees I knew that came to our tournament. I have some guys that they come from Ohio and have come for years. Um, they don't love to paint. 
And we know that, and they've told us that, and we want new people to come. So my one of my big objectives was how do I make the painting inclusive of a guy who this is their first tournament? Um, uh, Mark Ramzik, who is now a staple in our tournament scene, the first year, you know, he he had he had a barely painted army, you know, it just it just skated by the skin of his teeth, you know, but it was. So we developed a sheet after that first year with with how can we give points, give everybody points for their effort. Like, I want to reward your effort. And then we sort out, like the technical painting, we sort that out. So we do a top 10 and we display the top 10. Um, but that's all. I handle all that. I don't need to spreadsheet this point sheet. This is just for earning points in the game. So it also, it it stops... Uh, it stops hobbyists from earning points in the scoring, which the overall players like untoward points. So the hobbyists can't get an advantage. Uh, although we did introduce some of that trying to boost the hobby. We introduced some of that in 2019 with our club stuff. But but trying to keep out of the overall scoring, trying to keep paint out of it. So 25 on this spreadsheet is very easy to get. The other thing we did, which was also another idea I stole from, I'm going to talk about him a lot, the Raj from Point Hammered, was when we got to 115 players, I knew from my expect my Adepticon experience was that I did not want to score all those armies. It's an awful lot of work. So this is in the players' pack, and the players are expected to score it themselves. And, and we okay. validate. So we give it to them. We say, score yourself. Tell, you know, if you got conversions, write on it, and and then uh, I have Kevin go and validate, um, and we validate the forces, uh, and he loves to do it, so it's no big deal for him. But then he's got all he's got all weekend to do it, and we have the paint score. You know, uh, we don't have to worry about it. So that was that was the approach that I saw work well, um, and I've seen I've seen people be incredibly harsh on their paint score, and it's like stop. You earned more points. You know, we've we had more cases where we had to correct low scores than when we did had to correct high scores. I like that approach because I'm pretty sure Clint, for example, uh, does still mark the 240 players uh, using the checklist, which takes up a lot of resources. It's it's amazing uh, amount of work. Oh, it's like because you sit got to sit down. You spend probably at least three to five minutes properly going, right, you've got edge highlighting, where is it? Uh, show me the free hand, show me the shading. And as Travis pointed out as well, I like the ability to mix and match uh, but have a maximum of 25. And a prime example for at least for me is um, if I only had 25 points available and there was only 25 uh, different options for me, Let's say I flew in, and I was flying to Domus's to, to Domus's tournament. So, uh, and and that's quite common in Australia. We fly between tournaments. We don't drive nearly as much. And if I'm flying, to for me to take a two by two display board is near impossible. And yep. if you have a point for a display board, I'm already at a disadvantage because I can't physically really do it. Or if I do, it's going to look like hot garbage. It's something that's very basic. Um, some armies don't lend themselves to conversions or freehand or some of these things that, um, like I remember being scored at Adepticon and I was looking at, you know, minimum high and uh, the conversion levels. And I remember getting, I think, minimal or um, it was like average conversions, right? But I was playing Gits. I was playing children, I was playing like 160 grots yeah. or 100, 100 grots. For me to go a high level of conversion on grots, 
yeah. is not nearly the same as doing it on a Stormcast army. Yep. So comparing apples with apples is difficult, but by having some type of opportunity in other areas to gain those points and have a max um, allows different people to approach their army very differently. Absolutely. It also it works as a training guide for new hobbyists. Um, so I worked I worked really really hard on clarity. Clarity. I spent so long on each point trying to make every point as clear as it possibly could be, so that that hobbyists of all levels could look at it and understand. And if they don't, they ask questions. But it's a training guide for new for the new players that we want at our tournament. Is this is what this is how you do it? This is what we expect. Um, and I've got guys, uh, I've got high level competitive guys that love this because because they're min maxing, right? They're like, I need to do exactly what I need to do to get twenty five points and no more, and that's fine. Um, I've got guys that are like, I'm getting every point and then some, and that's great. But but the the biggest barrier to me for new players was often in paint scoring. Yeah. Um, and coming to you know coming with a painted army is tough when you're new as it is. And then having to meet all this weird, wacky criteria. So I, I tried to spell it out, make it clear to teach them what was expected. And if, you know, I try to work with people if they have questions and, you know, I, I'm pretty flexible. Like I'm, I'm a council as guys. So as long as you're, as long as you're not being silly, I, I allow a lot of that. Um, as long as you're not trying to actively confuse your opponent, stuff like that. And, and communicating as well, really clearly with your opponent uh, and your tournament organizer for me has been uh, has been really. Cool. If you've got a crazy idea, I, I like to say yes more than I say no, but it yeah. also has to be in the spirit of the game. So yeah, and it uh, had, you know you can't use the same conversion for two different things. That's you know that doesn't work. Stuff like that. But yeah, so that the painting, the painting, I spent a lot of time engineering that painting sheet to achieve those goals. And I'm super duper proud of it. And our community loves it. And our community loved self-scoring. Um, that was, they absolutely loved it. And like I said, more people were, were harder on themselves than they needed to be. Yeah, and I think for me, that's where the players pack really comes in and, and being very, very clear on what you're expecting and um, what is it like? What what is it, especially as a new player? Um, and you've got some really cool rules. I was just trying to bring up uh, one example. I even I'm I'm using for my painting now, is just what I'm expecting, which is you know, uh, is it what, what is battle ready? What is parade ready? What sure. is not ready? And you know, that's language that people are already using in Games Workshop. We used to use three color minimum uh, prior to to battle ready. Um, so just keeping it consistent like cool if you're looking for this many points this is kind of what it looks like if you're looking for this this is kind of what it looks like and defining it but then kind of you know as your document says you know this is really what you should be bringing come to the event have x y and z yep. um this is how the battle plans are going to work this is what we're expecting from your army painting um you know am i going to accept G gw miniatures only or can you use third party uh if i'm someone who likes to play kings of war as well can i bring square bases or you know what's the expectation of, from a basing perspective um this one was a, a was an interesting one because people uh let's say you malign sorcery endless spells they might have based things a certain way do i need to have like five different copies of of malign sorcery for the different yep. arts so how do i how do I manage my endless spells and being very, very clear on what's being managed? And and that was a tough choice to make. But at the end of the day, I just decided that that 
that so like i i have a personal just like i love people that convert and do counts as stuff i love that yeah um there are a lot of people i know who do it to to be a thrifty dude and i don't care for that if, if you're just trying to cut costs you know this isn't a this hobby costs money those those things have a power in the game so we just made that decision early on that that if you want to bring that power to the table then and it's the only thing i do but with the endless spells i require well, that's really cool i like that uh, but with the endless spells i require the gw model yeah yeah look and yeah unless there is a really good reason i've seen some really cool conversions again i'm always about conversions and um you know, my city is a Sigmar army, for example. I, I want it to feel as empire as possible, which means I'm a racist and I only want humans in my army. <laughs> but, you know, I'll use, you know, the, the Dreadlord on Black Dragon. So I've gone out and, and got my Carmine Dragon. I've painted it black. I've gone out and got Leopold the Black, which is an old Forge World hero that is mounting my, my dragon instead of a Dreadlord. So the spirit of the, of the army is not to be cheap. In fact, I'm spending more money than uh, yes. it would be to go buy it. But I think, you know, and I've seen some really cool conversions for the cogs and things like that. So I think it's like keeping in the spirit of the game. And, but there is, and it is cool. It, no, it's super cool. I've seen a ton of great conversions. We just decided and, you know, we do enough to to promote creativity and encourage hobby that in that area. We just made the choice to avoid it um, because because that first year they were so powerful. Uh, I, I mean, Gemi every army that was in the top probably 20 had Geminids that first year. You know, it just, they brought such a massive power element to the table. Uh, that was how we ended up where we did. I really like what you've got up here on the screen, though. So this this, this was uh, an event that I ran uh, for, for Christmas. It was just like literally my event was Sigmas. Um, yep. I stopped the idea from Chuck Moore. I've seen his meme, meme, this memed. Uh, and I just thought, look, I just want to bring my players together and I want them to, uh, to, to, to have a good time. So we basically just had like a, what says 28 became 40 players. But, you know, like I, I was very clear on what I expect from a COVID point of view. Like, this is what we're going to do. These are the requirements. This is what I need you to do to keep people safe. I made sure to get customized lunches. I, I couldn't have a buffet. I couldn't have them hanging around in crowds. Yeah. So I thought that was an easy way for me to manage my expectations on um, on lists and how we would work with things like, you know, Malign Sorcery, uh, uh, General's Handbook, you know, um, things like Jaws of Mork. Yep. Um, if, if something came out from the game, at what point would I accept them up to? And, you know, FAQs happening here. Um, WYSIWYG or what you see is what you get is something that is very common in our community, you know, um, and how I, how I, I, I stand around with square bases. So, um, that's the rule, stick to the square basing. But yeah, for me, painting as well is like, cool, here is a very clear picture of what is battle ready, what is parade ready, and what is not ready. And I've seen Clint, for example, I think he's probably the greatest with Clint, is um, if someone hasn't got their armies meeting the painted, he'll pull them off the table. And I, I initially was very hesitant to do it. I was very, very laxed. I've now grown, I've become more confident myself to say, guys, you've had enough time to paint your army. If you're taking the piss, I will pull your model and you can play with half an army. That's, and, that's what we do at Adepticon. If you have unpainted models, you do not get to use them. Yeah. yeah. And now, then at my event, I do it differently. I, you get punished in the scoring and you're absolutely ineligible to win any awards. 
but so I'm I'm trying to discourage it at every level versus like I what I don't want to do is somebody who's come to my event for the two day weekend because it, like Adepticon, there's so much other stuff to do so that it's easy to do there. But I don't want to kick some take, you know, shut down your weekend. You've spent a lot of money to come. Yeah. So so I, I it's a well-known fact that you need to have a painted army. So if you show up without one, you're going to get penalized. And I, I had to penalize a very close friend and do that to him. And it, it was awful. But I, I was like, sorry, you're going to get a zero for painting and you can't win any awards. And he would have won an award. So it, it you know, it was unfortunate. But, but he still played. He still had a good time over that weekend. Um, you know, so I, it's, because of that two-day event and that mindset and the travel involved, because most people, there's very few local to us. Everybody's traveling three plus hours, so yeah. so there's a hotel stay, there's costs. And, and what I'd say to Kanga here, who's just mentioned the Bailwind Vortex, which has been out of stock for well over twelve months, um, and I, I I I would have leniency with that. Um, that's I probably would at this point too, but that wasn't an issue in 2019. No, no, no. I would, you know, like something like Geminids, for example. Yes, I think, you know, we've got to have a conversation on why you're not taking standard Geminids uh, and how you're going to make it. Anytime anyone wants to do a conversion, I need them to look about 60 to 70% like the real model. It needs to be clear. Uh, but something like Alwyn Vortex, I would definitely be more lenient um, with making sure that you've got something equivalent because, yeah, you just can't buy the model. Yeah. And it is currently match play. It's not like it's Legends. It's yeah. so. So uh, we and we've stuck to we've stuck to the guns with legends and if it goes to legends, we're very sorry, but it's out. That's yeah. it's not our game. Someone else decided. That's not on us. But right now it's got points, it's in battle tomes, it's match play. So something like that, I I, I do have compassion. Yeah, I agree. I do too. And and that's kind of I think that's a, a key takeaway as a TO is you know you're human and so are they, you know, you make these rules. Um, it's subject to change, you know, yeah. and as long as you give people notice, like I, so I, don't, I, I lock the rules down probably a month prior to the event way before the lists are due. And then I don't make any changes. Um, you know, I might, if I absolutely had to, but I absolutely try not to make any changes to the rules. Cause then everybody knows what they're getting. But up until then I'll do make whatever changes we need to make. So in the scenario of the bail wind being unavailable, you know, then we might be a little bit more flexible on that point for that effect. I, I, I want to call out somewhere that uh, a TO has really shown flexibility and I want to shout them out. Uh, it's something that happened to me personally. Um, and this is probably why you as a tournament organizer need to be flexible because there's no black and white. There's a lot of gray. I was going to a face-to-face -face match play event in November uh, run by Michael Thompson in Canberra. So I was traveling um, a couple of hours from my house and um, Sons, so I was, I was going to run Sons of Behemoth. So it was just after I, I made up my army for Armies on Parade. I had I was going to bring my Armies on Parade board. It was the first event that I could actually physically bring my board as well. And I put a lot of money, a lot of time into my gargants. And the the list submission was uh, was was FAQable. So I could I could submit my army within range of the FAQ, but the FAQ was late. The FAQ should have been four weeks out from the battle tome. It was almost yep. closer to five. And I had a conversation with Michael because according to his rules, I shouldn't have been able to run Sons. And there was another player who wanted their Gargans as well. 
And I said to Michael, I said, Michael, I have painted my ass off. I had this display board. I really want to run Gargans. And if I can't run Gargans, I'm just going to pull out. It wasn't me throwing my toys out of the crib. It was, I haven't been playing with anything for ages other than Gargans. I've been so excited. And anything that isn't Gargans is just disappointing me. Yep. So I'd rather you just give the ticket to somebody else and let them play. And Michael was really flexible and said, look, we don't know what's going to happen. How about you submit your list still in advance, but I will house rule you. So there were some questions around, you know, kicking objectives and, sure. you know, things like that. if you agree to my FAQs, then I'm, I'm, I'm cool with you running it. And I accepted. I said, cool, look, look, I don't know how the glowing lantern was going to work with my gargans. Could I cast spells? Could I not? What could I do? There was a lot of unclarity, but it was some negotiation. And luckily it worked out in favourable. But I think that's where you've got to work with your tournament organiser and be flexible. Because at the ultimate day, I don't think I was trying to break the rules. But at the same time, like, work my ass off for this army. There was things that outside of my control that I just couldn't do. Yep, exactly. And that was just it. It was outside of your control. And and he was cool and saw that and worked with you to come to, I mean, because he had, you have to, as the TO, you do have to be flexible. You also have to maintain the integrity of your event. Yes. Um, in that not allowing somebody to, you know, if that's your rule, you, you have to live by it. And it, and like when I had to to prevent my a good friend of mine who had one model that wasn't painted and had to prevent him from winning an award, that's what my rules pack said. That's what I had to live and die by. Um, you know, so I have flexibility up until that lockdown, but then the weekend of, you know, I'm pretty myself, I'm pretty strict and live by my rules because that's that's what I've told people. And again, everybody's my friend. So if if I at any point do anything other than what my rules said, you know, I, that's some kind of plain favorite. Yeah, the, I, for me, it's become really important with uh, with battle tomes being played before the FAQ. Uh, I remember being at Adepticon where I played a corn player who had to use their old battle tome, uh, even though they had the new battle tome in their hand. Unfortunately, it wasn't FAQ'd, but it was the right call because. Um, there has been some rules that have come out with a battle tome that need to be FAQ'd. And without without that clarity, you potentially have this player on the loose causing a bad experience with your opponent. Yeah, so. it's it but like I so I'm the other way because it, it's a worse experience to me if you've got a brand new book and you can't use it. That's a pretty like that's an that's awful experience. That was the other side I was gonna call out because um I'm running an event next month. It's only like, it's a small event, 50 players, one day, but I'm letting Slanish and Daughters play sure. uh, because it won't be FAQable, but people will be excited to run their new mortal Slanish. They're going to want to run their new Daughters temples. So there's a trade-off here. And I think as a TO, whether you're asking people as a, a committee, hey, guys, do you allow it or don't you allow it? Or do you say to players, no, no army before an FAQ? I think you need to make a ruling clear. And stick to it. Exactly. And and the thing that really the most, besides my personal feelings on the subject, the thing that guides my hand the most is the app. So the day that the army book releases, all the war scrolls in the app are updated. And and 90% of us at a tournament are using the app. We're in our community. You know, people use war scrolls, but a lot of us use the app. So 
So if your book's been updated, but you're playing the old version, you can't use your phone to use your app. And it just, it like, then there's this, you know, are you using the old version or using the new version? I, so we just, we're just, I, I'd have to look, let me look and see what my so cutoff this is. My, this goes back to what we said earlier about risk versus reward. And there I is do no a week cutoff. It's a week before, but, but again, I'm gifted with, with prior knowledge. So I do a week cutoff. Um, and if you've got a new book and it's not been FAQ'd, and I also don't allow FAQs beyond that date. So if 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 it drops, if I've cut it off on a Friday, the tournament's the next Friday, FAQ drops on Monday, it's not admissible. Um, so we, we ice everything off on that date, and that's, it is what it is. But like I said, because of my prior knowledge, I will also house rule. If I know it's coming in FAQ, I typically house rule it. Yeah, and look, you know, like the, the reason I said to my players recently about Daughters and Slanesh is because um, people may notice I've, I've now started getting books in advance. So Games Workshop is being very kind to send me those books. Oh, so congrats. I've had time to digest them. I've had some time to digest them and go, cool, I'm pretty comfortable with it. Uh, but maybe for yourself, maybe it's you looking at it or maybe talking to maybe the most competitive players in your tournament to get a sense check. You mentioned earlier chatting to um, to Facehammer, um, you know, talk to other tournament organisers, talk to other people and get some, and this is not just for rules, this is just generally, yeah. sense check your ideas. Like, hey, I'm gonna. I'm thinking about giving people a free Underworlds warband. What do you think? And uh, what what some of the risks? Or you know, where could this go bad? Um, and they might go, oh, do you know the combination with the Bride Queen and blah blah blah. Oh no. Okay, cool. Well, maybe I need to put a house FAQ so that one little outlier just kind of gets brought into line. But for majority of the Underworlds warbands, you cool? It's nothing. Yeah, it's totally cool. And that's where and, and that's where you can bring in house rules to say, look, at this particular event, this is how we're measuring distance when you climb over a wall. This yep. is how we get a block line of sight when it comes to blah. Yeah, and for the and like I said, I we don't we don't mess with the rules at all. We try not to, you know, but there's like I remember there's always interactions that are gonna be weird and I'm just, so I just you know, if if you're if you set those expectations, and and I'm and that's like I keep coming back to that, but it's so key. Like everybody knows what's going to happen, and right, wrong, different. There'll be people that agree or disagree with your choices, but the expectations are set, and no one is surprised. So you know that that's a big thing that people should know and take away is, is you don't want to surprise your player base. You want them to know well in advance because. I sell my tickets in February for an end of July event and they, people start planning even before that, what they're going to build and paint for these events. Um, so you, you, my, my, my daughters of Kane army is preparation for CanCon 2022. So I'm too. building an army right now for January, 2022. Wow. Um, now that's because I'm converting my army and sure. I'm, 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 but, but most people CanCon in Australia is like the, is Mecca. That is our number one place that we all go to. Um, and and most people prepare for that event. So, you know, sure. being being Adepticon, uh, South Coast GT, you know, these are flagstone events. Yeah, you, you absolutely want to make sure people know what they're, they're preparing for. I agree, 100%. 
Any advice on sponsors? I I, I, we, I know we started talking a little about sponsors because for me, sponsorship has been important and I recognise, and I think part of the challenge that I've had with other people going to sponsors is that they basically like want a handout. You're like, hello, Mr. Pro Company, can I have some free product? Yeah, and that's not the way it works. No, because like if I'm on the other side and, and I've, I've got a very commercial orientated background, um, I showed Domus a little earlier, my Excel, actually I'm flipping over now, like I go to a point with my Excel where I actually um, have spread out, you know, ticket pricing and I like, you know, look at a very P&L kind of level of the way I manage my events and, you know, break down the costs and I talked about, you know, costs over years you know, spread out my cost over events. And, you know, I'm very, very, you know, analytical with my approach. But if I'm a business owner and I'm, and someone's reached out and said, hey, Anthony, uh, I, I want some free stuff. What's in it for me? Well, exactly. So the, I, and I, I was that guy my first year. I didn't, I had no clue. I didn't know. I, you know, I asked some of the guys from Adepticon, but, but they were doing it already at such a high level that it wasn't where I was. Um, so I reached out to a local store and said, you know, look, I want, I'm going to do it, run this big event, you know, we'll, we'll name drop you, we'll do whatever, you can have a display, you can sell stuff, you know, let's talk about, you know, are you willing to do anything? And the guy, you know, there was not, he was not going to donate any price support to the event. And I was a little, I, I kind of expected that he would at first, to be honest. So I was a little surprised. Um, what he did offer was, was stuff at a discount. Um, you know, like, cause he, uh, this particular guy always sells stuff at full retail. So he offered like, you can buy your price support from me for 20% off of retail. And I'm like, well, uh, I do better than that already. Thanks, but no thanks. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, you know, that was why ultimately Tom and I just provided all of our price support. Um, so, so it kind of evolved into having a sponsor because, because like I said, I buy all my, my models from Ministomp, uh, landmine at ministomp.com. Um, and I buy all my personal models from him and most of us in the Midwest do. And we were talking, um, at an Adepticon or something. And I'm like, you know, I'm, it was, it was 2018 going into 2019. And I'm like, look, we're increasing to 115 players, um, that I can no longer fund the price support out of my basement. We need to have a conversation. And and we had this was a conversation that took it wasn't one phone call. And I and I just said I showed him the player list. Uh, and I said, look at this list of players. I'm willing to bet the 70 plus percent of this player list player base are your customers. And he yeah. he took the list and he got back to me. He's like, oh shit, you're right. <laughs> and and we just talked and we had a conversation and we figured it out. He, and he was insanely generous. I mean, he, the man is insanely generous with what they do for us. So like, so he, you know, he donates X amount, which I never in a million years expected, but then we work out, I, I tell him what I want. We work out a price point and then he just sends me, you know, I was like, I, my basic deal is I figure out what I have left over after all my other costs and then I send him that, and he sends me extra prizes over and above what he donates. But he donates an obscene amount um, for the event. And a, and a lot of that is because all of our players are his customers, and he wants to support events. He's he, he It's not just my event he does this for. He does this for a lot of events in our area. Um, and they want to support our events because 
because it in it, what's in it for them is at the end of the day, the more of us that are playing at more of these events, the more of us that are buying models. And that's the bottom line. And he knows that and understands that. And that's his return. Um, so what I just so brought I, up on the screen, by the way, for, if you're wondering what I've done, uh, I brought up a players pack from my mind two years ago. And one of the things that I'm always very passionate about is, is trying to create brand awareness for my, my sponsors right. and, um, uh, you know, making launch videos or posting on social media. Um, I, I put awesome. their logos on my players pack. So it's actually on any of my branded assets. So this is the first page of my players pack. And I update it as I get more sponsors, you know, making sure that they get value for money and they feel like they're getting value for money. Um, sometimes, you know, like a uh, prime example, um, Cromlich and Green Stuff World, by the way, has been an awesome sponsor of mine. They are so freaking cool. It's almost nice. like no questions attached. They're just great. And they'll always send me stuff for like my best painted or my coolest army. Actually, they're my coolest army sponsor okay. uh, because they always send me like bits and conversions and, and random tools. But they'll also send me like a discount code. So with my players packs, I'll go, hey, guys, um, A, um, uh, you know, you get a discount of 15, 20%. Um, B, people like Dark Fantastic Mills here. Um, another wonderful sponsor that I've had over the years um, will we'll donate a bunch of things to me, but he'll also give me a, a discount. And because Dark Fantastic Meals is coming from England, he'll say to me, guys, look, here's, a, here's your code, 20% or 10% off whatever it is. But he's going he's sending me stuff anyway. Um, people can buy stuff in advance and save money on shipping and just bundle it in and pick it up on the day at the event. Oh, nice. uh, that's happened with things like Deep Cut Studios as well, a battle mat company that um, I was already organizing a couple of battle mats so people can tag on, save some money, and it means my order is bigger. And I know places like, uh, you know, Fat Mats and, and deep, deep Cut, if you buy 10 mats off them, they'll, they'll, they'll discount your product. Sure. So, one, you're, you're support, supporting them. Two, you're actually saving some money. I just thought that might be an interesting call out that, you know, these are ways that you can generate value for money uh, for things that you're already doing. Yeah. So, and what we do is we, on Facebook, we, we shout out our sponsors on Twitter. I shout out our sponsors like repeatedly. So I try to, you know, the, I think the rules pack is great. Um, but I try to, on social media, I try to give them a bigger presence. Of course, we talk about them at the tournament and the event. Uh, and like I said, we have multiple people now and multiple donation points. Um, you know, but it, I understand that that those first times that sponsorship conversation is weird and it's awkward. Um, and I would just say, don't expect free stuff. You know, start by trying to get a discount and work from there. You know, buy prizes at a discount. Um, and then work from there and then and then establish a relationship. And I think once you establish a relationship that opens doors to a lot of other things. One other thing that I learned was um, being very clear on what you want. Uh, my first year of, of asking for sponsorships was like, hey, I'm running this event. You know, I'm target market. You know, I, you know, I try to sell my event uh, and I'm like, hey, do, can, do you want a sponsor? And a lot of the times they're like, what do you want? Because they don't know my event. And I started telling them like, hey, guys, um, I'm running an event. You know, here's my target market. This is what, you know, what the event's going to be about. I'm looking for a sponsor for my best painted armies. And some of the things I'm looking for is voucher, 
uh, maybe name a couple of products on their website. These are the types of things that I'm looking for for this award. Are you sure. interested in? And they're like, and I've had some sponsors come back going, look, not only do we want to support here, we'd like to support other ways. Or nice. do you have other rewards that maybe like not the winner, but maybe second and third? And I've actually then created awards because someone has actually kind of put more money in the kitty that I've asked. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, but I do recognize because of, you know, the economic challenges right now, some people are probably going to look at their, 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 their penny strings. But then talking to a, lo a lot of local stores, they've said their profits have been through the roof, Games Workshop's profits through the roof. Yeah. So actually they're more willing to get their brand out there and support the community because I, it's I, I can tell you in our area, people, people were dying to go to tournaments. Like we all want to go. We're all being safe and cautious and we're not. But like we could run tournaments, totally sand prizes, probably even trophies, and people would still come because right now, because people want to go. It's something we're not doing, and it's something we terribly miss. Um, so you know, and and I understand the the clarity. I learned of all about the clarity with what you ask for because I have to ask for terrain for Adepticon, and when you're asking for thirty five enduring and uh, enduring stormfalls, is that what they were called? You know, that's a big ask. Yeah. The big the big stormcast terrain gets you you you've, you've made a really good point as well because the the incentive of attending doesn't have to be the price pool um that's just a nice little feature and um and yeah that's not the reason why people are coming so maybe take the the pressure off and um maybe you pick up a couple of small prizes you know maybe you know like i've picked up a whole bunch of games workshop you know five ten fifteen twenty dollar vouchers that you can give away as well sure. uh I've seen, uh, like I've had my sponsors, anyone who's actually like my local game store, I've actually got them in to come present their prizes too on the awards oh, ceremony. That's awesome. So, um, and they've been great. And, uh, you know, one particular year, they actually bring a whole bunch of free product. Like they literally came in out of nowhere with more product, whether it was stuff they couldn't sell or things that they just wanted to give away. Like one year they gave me a whole box of Malign Sorcery. They're like, it was like, this is brand new Malign Sorcery. Just come off the shelf. They're like, hey, here's some extra stuff we want to give you. So um, incorporating your business partners and getting them more involved, um, like that's how you get value for money. And then the next time I reach out to Cromlich, I'm like, hey, guys, um, and I actually remind them as well, like, hey, this is our sponsorship from last year. Here's some pictures of what we did. Um any ROI figures, like here's how many people I'm emailing in my mailing list or this was the impressions, um, then strengthens and it means they'll actually give me more stuff because they're seeing a value in their in their um, investments. Sure. And, and by the way, I just want to give a shout out to uh, to Warpeaks. Thanks for uh, for joining up, man. I really, really appreciate it. Um, that's really cool. And, uh, about, and by the way, uh, Message me if you're not uh, in the Discord, uh, please, and uh, I'll give you some special privileges. Stuff they can't sell is always a good deal. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of these guys that have product, and because you know these game stores only have a certain amount of shelf space, um, I've been surprised how many people have like the old boxes Phoenix Guard or some yep. type of random old product, and they probably can't sell it, but actually, still giving away old models, people still value them. They'll convert them. They'll paint them. Um, like in some cases they the values to the roof that i mean the tomb kings are the best example that those models if you find them that's like hidden gold you know 
Yeah, so definitely like having conversations with your sponsors. But I think for me, it's just about just being a bit more, more co commercially savvy and just, you know, being very clear of what you're, they get. You're, you are well. far more commercially savvy about it than I am. I'm more of the um, the how you doing approach. <laughs> oh, you should, you should see my emails like, hey, you know, hey, Domus, my name's <laughs> Anthony. I run this event. You know, this is my target market who's going to be attending. Uh, actually, another lesson I learned as well is I talked yeah. to them once my ticket sales are happening. I thought I'd be really smart. Your beard's awesome, by the way, like this. Thanks. Oh, sorry. I do that all the time, drives my wife nuts. Um, so like I initially reached out to my sponsors uh, before the tickets. I thought I'd be really prepared, like, hey, I'm gonna run a 100 player event, you know, this is what's gonna go. Uh, and I didn't get a lot of traction. But when I said to them, hey, I've already got 80 people already paid for the tickets, that's money in the bank. And they're like, they, they, they took that more seriously. Sure. And, and yeah. If anyone's got any questions about sponsors, I'm happy to talk to them. But like, I was just like very salesperson, like this, 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 this. And uh, yeah. but I've got a really good strike rate. Like you saw that. Like you know, my previous players yep. packs, I've always got five, ten, maybe even twenty strong quality sponsors, which means that I can invest more of my dollars or keep my ticket price low. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. We just do the how you doing approach, and it's it's worked out great. So we were we were gonna have two hundred. Is that right? 200 in 2020? That the year that got canceled? I think it was 200. It might have been 180. And I was looking to expand to 200 with because we had a giant wait list. Um, but yeah, uh, sponsors, it's just so uncomfortable when you don't have that commercial background to make that call. Make, and, and for me, it just, I got lucky. I happened to know the guy and we just had a conversation. Um, and it just worked out. Look, like uh, people, look, like I, when I think of sponsors, I, I went, I went wide before I went deep. I thought of that, like, what are the different things that people could sponsor with, you know? And I'm looking at my list. I've got a, uh, actually, I might even bring it up just on the screen really quickly. Like, here's just an example of, you know, some of my sponsor lists. Like, right, cool. Here are all the people that I want. Have I reached them out? What type of sponsors could they be? You know, how are my communications going? And you're, you know, I'm you're hardcore, man. <laughs> like this, this is just one example from a previous year that I've kind of been fleshed out. But who are my different local game stores that I could tap into? Um, things like Windsor Newton, cool. Windsor, Windsor and Newton do brushes. Who else do brushes? Army Painter, Artist Opes. Um, you know, if I want battle mats, you know, I've got uh, Urban Mats, but I've also then got Fat Mats. So if I don't get traction on one. I could go to another sure. uh, or I might reach out to both of them and whoever gives me the best deal, uh, whether it's a discount, whether it's free product, I could then take them on as a sponsor. But I've generally found if I think about it, you know, commercially, and I think about just again, giving value back uh, and proving value back, then uh, I've had a lot of success. You know, people, awesome. you know, art, you know, artists, artists, Opus, for example, you know, they're a great sponsor as well. So again, just think about the different people, the different things in your community. I need to right. hit those guys up. I know those guys. That's my yeah. kind of conversation. Byron. You're going you to hurt Byron a little bit, but he eventually responds to your emails. But he, he's very generous with his support if he takes you on board. Yeah. He's been awesome. Uh, happily. I need to get a Series D uh, dry brushes off him. Those those dry brushes are, are I have sensitive. those. They're pretty legit. I recognize we've been going for a while. I was going to ask for a couple, couple of rapid-fire questions. I'm sure you need to pay... Uh, and we'll kind of bring it home. I think we've kind of given a really good scope of uh, of the preparation, whether it's the venues, sponsors, the players packs, uh, the communication, you know, the terrain and, you know, pulling your resources in. 
the the stuff around um uh you know butt space as well like logistical as well and uh and you know perfect example you know i i think that's a really great approach is you know asking you know is there some things that you know on the self that that you you're not moving they might give it to you at a very heavy discount to clear the sure. inventory or give it to you at no cost um so you know it's a good idea but a couple of rapid fire questions that have come from the community so wolf priest carl has asked um how do you combat slow play? Have you been in a situation where either the people aren't finishing their game on time, you're finding, you know, certain players maybe uh, aren't completing their three rounds, whether it's intentionally or accidentally, maybe they've taken like a, a Skaven army and they're not practiced and, you know, the deployment's really slow. Sure. Have you been in a situation? What have you done? What advice would you give uh, for your event? So so we um, we saw this on the rise. We saw as the armies got be bigger people taking bigger armies and they weren't as good at moving them i mean that's a that's a skill is moving a big army fast so we put it in our our player pack um and I'm, i just need to look over here at it and and in fact we stipulate that um it's part of our etiquette and if you if you receive more than X amount of votes of not completing games on time or reaching a natural conclusion, because sometimes you may not get to, to, to round five, but you know how it's going to come out, you know, or you accept that that's how it's come out and you, you agree to a natural conclusion. Um, but if it, that's one of the things a player says is no, we did finish on time or yes, we didn't slash natural conclusion. If you get too many, no votes, then we address it, um, and and I do that in the form of a sports penalty, and that will knock you out of overall. If you mm. don't if you don't get max etiquette points, it almost ensures. Last year, the last year of event, the overall was decided by one point, um, so it almost guarantees that you will not get best overall if I penalize you three to six points. Um, and so we talk about it and we also do, you know, as a community, we talk about it, about using movement trays, about not taking armies that you're not practiced with that are big. You know, if you want to play a big army, great. Practice with it and get a handle on how to use it before the tournament. Don't show up and never have played a big army and have to move all those models because it's that's a that's where the time suck lies. It's also not just big armies. It could be an army that has a lot of rerolls. You know, I remember yeah, having yeah. really bad experience with like bone splitters with their exploding sixes and their rerolls. And this person was the slowest person in the world. Um, and like that in itself, like if you you, you got to be really quick with your dice rolling, you've got to be yeah. really quick with knowing your figures. And you know, whether it's using AOS reminders, whether it's finding one that's not as complicated, just knowing you know, not looking at wall scroll every five seconds because. And there's a whole other downside to fast dice rolling, right? Then that makes you look sketchy. So you you're you're traversing that line between being sketchy and expedient. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. And maybe this is not the right army for you, or maybe you need to practice a bit more before you bring it. But I think as a tournament, I think what you said, tracking it over time, giving warnings, penalties, uh, yeah. and you know, making people ineligible, but also communicating early. Like just if if, if this is not the right army for you, find ways where there's movement. Do it. Yeah, don't do it, please. <laughs> and, you know, don't be anal with your pylons. Just move things quickly, uh, and, especially and if There's always that one combat, right, that you have to. But save that for that key moment. Do it slow and thorough and methodical, and then just do everything else fast, you know? 
Rocco, your boy, had mentioned, uh, he asked you a little bit about tables and terrains and things. We won't go to that because we've kind of already talked about it. But he wanted to ask a little bit about how do you how do you get your crew to, to set up? Like how do you get them to help run your event? Any advice on on tapping into your crew? I think we mentioned earlier about, you know, the social contract and talking and data entry. But is there anything else that you do with your crew or maybe even sell the idea of helping? Um, do you have to sell to get people to help? No, no, it's uh, it's a great bunch. Um, our, I've had I've had friends come in a day early and we party. So the tournament starts on Friday. We set up on Friday, and then the the actual first game of the tournament Saturday morning. I've had people come in on Thursday, and we stay the night at the hotel and party and hang out. And then for, they come to hang out, but then they help set up the next day. Uh, people come early. I I have found that our community is amazing, and people just come and people want to help. People want the event to be an success that are in it and are happy to help. So I've had you know people come early and help, and then people who stay late and help. Um, at Adepticon, I do vouchers for lunches um, to do that rewards. And and I haven't I've I haven't really done a whole lot for the people that help, other than you know goodwill and bro power at our event. But we have had a lot of people that typically help set up and tear down. But Eagle. Kevin and I can do Eagle. it ourselves. You gave me a voucher at Adepticon because I helped. So I'm like, what's yeah. going yeah. on here? At Adepticon, I have that power because because they give me vouchers to give to people. <laughs> well, you can always put that money aside uh, from your from your spend and know that, sure. you know, that. Uh, one, one other way as well I found is just communicating what time you're setting up. I found by telling the, your community, hey, guys, I'm going to be setting up from 3 o'clock on Friday yeah, or 8 do that on too. Friday. If you want to help, if you've got nothing to do, if you want to come support, um, uh, hang out, have a couple of beers and just, you know, help out. I'd appreciate it. And um, just letting people know what time you're doing it. Um, people actually come help. So I, I've been real fortunate. Um, Bryce Schultz, um, I kind of tapped him one year at Adepticon to help to help me tear down. And um, I, I taught him how to do it. So at my event, it, when I have to tabulate scores, uh, and there's a lot of people who've also done this, but he helps me and leads the effort to to tear down. So he's packing stuff away while other people are bringing him the terrain, because it's, again, it's the Adepticon terrain. So we've we've a lot of us have taken it down and reset it up. The the Indiana crew is real good for that. A lot of people just the same people help a lot, so they know what to do. I yeah, tear down's easy for me because I'll ha like I'll have like a marshal or something like look. This is where the boards are going. You know, I'll put the battle mat um, uh, cases under each table. I'll have a couple of different crates that'll say, you know, put dwarf table terrain here, put chaos tables terrain here, and you know, then have someone kind of coordinates. But it's always like getting getting things set up earlier is usually a little bit harder because people aren't around. Um, Tuin had asked, uh, how much do you manage the social contract between players at your events? Um, so. So I personally don't get involved unless I need to. Um, so this is part of our expectation that, like I said, the very first paragraph um, says that, that the, the spirit of the event, the event is that playing the game the way you want to is okay. Be a good opponent in winning or losing. I also stipulate that I can't eject anybody from the tournament at any time for untowards behavior. Again, even even this year or 2020 when we were going to be 200 people, I knew very well 90% of those people. The 10% that I don't, I get to know. Um, and it's just not 
it's just not that kind of community. Like I know a lot of communities will do red cards and stuff like that. I typically don't have to, we don't have to do that stuff. Uh, we don't have to police the community. Even we even have some, some minors playing that are under 18, you know, and uh, you know, I don't try to police language or anything like that. I make sure that if somebody's bringing a minor child, that they understand that this is what the event's going to be. There's going to be course language. Um, people are going to talk, you know, in a way that's not necessarily fitting. So, but usually they know, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I only get involved if I have to in the social contract. That is a hundred percent on the players. Um. And, and if I need to, I will get involved and I'll swing the axe. But I, I sure hope I never have to. It's been very rare that I've had to actually handle that. Um, I think, yeah, I think there's there's some times where I've had to pull a player aside. Um, I had one player uh, who, who I think took about an hour to deploy. Um, I've had a couple of other ones where, you know, I've had some, some repeat, you know, offenders and I've had to pull the person and say, I don't know what's happening at your table. You know, this is what, you know, I'm giving you a warning. It's not a red card, but like just yeah. I'm keeping an eye on you. You're gonna just have to sort this out. Uh, but generally, not my, my, most of the time, people can po police themselves, and it's generally quite good. I did have a couple of conversations um, with a couple of players who had, who in 2019 had had a lot of. If I if I got multiple reports of negative stuff, attitude, play, whatever. Um, I had conversations with those people going into 2020 and just said, look, this is what, you know, and some people were very surprised. And I was like, look, this is what was reported to me about you from other players. Uh, and I won't be naming names, but I will be watching in 2020. And it, if this behavior, if you are doing this and this continues, then we may have to make a decision about 2021, you know, yeah. and just tell them, you know, look, this is not the kind of behavior. If I get complaints about behavior, I don't want, you know, it like if, if you were, if, if somebody with a hard army beats you and, and they beat you using the rules and you spend the next two days complaining about them and bad mouthing them to everybody, that's a terrible experience for them. They didn't come to beat up on you. They came to win. It's a very different thing. You just you were the speed bump, fluffy bunny. Um, so we've seen some of that stuff. So I just, I just, I guess that's the one thing I do do is I reach out and I'm like, look, we need to correct this behavior. This is, I understand that you're playing the game a different way, but you need to understand that they are too. Um, and that's that's our that's the spirit of our event is we want all kinds of players. So sometimes when the when the soft bunnies and the hardcore competitive guys meet, the 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 tail wagging between their legs is And that's the difference, right? Is it did you have a bad experience because uh look, you just got burninated by Seraphon? Like was it just like you know, the person played legal list and it's unfortunate that some rules are a bit stronger than others at right now. Is it you just had a bad matchup or a bad game? Or did the player go out there and yeah. fundamentally create a bad experience? I've had players who uh, who go – one, one area that I have to watch out a lot with is things like alcohol and people going to the bar often or um, yep. getting too drunk and, you know, either, you know, causing a bad experience and just, you know, just generally not having a good game for their opponent. So there's a balance between getting too drunk – there, there certainly is, and and that's a different, that's another thing. That's a very different conversation. Uh, but then there's also like, look, I just got beaten by Seraphon. 
someone's got 80 archers from Luminev. Yes, it was a tough matchup, but the person just played a really tough as now list. So yep. separating the two. Uh, Hobby Bear asked, uh, would you rather be feared or loved? Uh, well, his answer was, of course, the only right one on Twitter, and that that's the Michael Scott answer: is that you want to be, you want people to be afraid of how much they love you. Uh, but no, I absolutely want to be loved. Um, but I also, I also want people to understand, like I, because I love everybody. But I also want people to respect the event. So you know, so we have to maintain that integrity. So you know, I won't, I won't give up, endear, you know, anything for that jason had asked around gatekeeping and um i'm not sure i've seen a lot of gatekeeping whether it's uh, you know maybe there is some unintentional gatekeeping but he mentioned talking a little bit about navigating the line between being inclusive to new players and running a you know a, a legitimate event you know quote unquote do you have any thoughts around how you can create an inclusive event for new players but still keep to the event Sure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've said, I said earlier quite a lot, like with our paint seat, that was part of the goal was, was to be inclusive of new players. So I think you have to look at that as what are the, what are the stop gaps and the hurdles for a new player and painting an army is absolutely positively the biggest. And uh, that's a huge hurdle if you have no experience in doing that. Um, but at the same time, you know, we all pay a lot of money for this weekend. Nobody wants to play against an army full in gray. So, so allowing a new player, but not taking away from the rest of the field is something you have to weigh. And that's why we did our paint sheet the way we did. You know, if somebody decides that they need to show up like that, we penalize them heavily. Um, and I also have a conversation with them. And like, if anybody showed up with an unpainted army, we would have a conversation and it would be clear that that would never happen again. Showing up with an unpainted model, it's unfortunate. It's a different scenario, you know. So so that's the kind of stuff we do is we try to be inclusive. And and our players know that we try to be inclusive. So, again, it's the word of mouth factor, you know. Everybody brings a friend. Friends bring the friend. We keep getting more friends coming. We get new people. And it's an education process into expectation. One other way that I try to create inclusive events, uh, whether it's by new players, by gender, by uh, whatever whatever inclusivity we want to talk about here, is introductions as well. And I know that, you know, in the competitive tournament scene, there is a whole bunch of people who are seasoned veterans. And then there are new people who just don't know anybody. And you can watch them. You watch them at the cafe. You watch them at lunch. You watch them at the gaming table. And they don't know anybody. So if there are ways that you can uh, introduce them, and one example I did at my last event was I had a lanyard for everybody that had their name with uh, their social media. So I'd ask them on registration for their Twitter or their Instagram handle so that if there are going to be gaming photos, they can tag them, they can add them as a follow or whatever it might be. But also now everyone should know everyone's name because it's a little name badge. So any way I can introduce or, you know, if there's lunches or if there is some type of, you know, social interaction, anytime I can introduce them to the uh, the more experienced players or the crew um, to, to make them feel like a part of the community, um, I'll always look for that. No, that's great. And, and, and I do a form of that actually that I didn't remember um, in our, so in our initial conversation before the event, one of the things I do is I ask, you know, people, if this is their first event, raise your hands. And then I ask 
people to look around. I said, now I need my community to look around and take note of these new players. And I, and I, I specifically ask them to include them, go out of your way to include them, invite them to your lunch, invite, you know, do this stuff. And then on the flip side, I also ask my community leaders and I name them um, guys like Brendan, guys like Brad Schwant, uh, the guys that lead their clubs, you know, I ask them to raise their hands and I, and I point them out to the new players. I'm like, look, these are our community leaders. If you need anything and you don't want to come to me, go ask them. They will absolutely, you know, these, this is, this is what, like, I remember the first time I met Brendan, he wasn't a community leader. He was a guy at Adepticon. We were playing games, um, you know, and he stepped up and he's, he loves that role. Um, so, you know, these community leaders, I, we all want more people in our hobby to play games for them. You know, not, it's not true of everybody, but in our area, that's, that's what we want is we want to play with as many awesome people as we can, the more the merrier. So uh, let's, let's uh, bring everybody into the fold. And hopefully these events kick off then the, the, the next games days, the, uh, the next club meets and, you know, you, you invite them to future opportunities or when you see them at the next event, you've now got a, a, sure. a relationship to build upon. Uh, maybe two last questions and we'll kind of wrap things up. Chris uh, Chris has asked, is there any instances where you've had cheating at a high level uh, okay. and how would you handle those? It, if I had proven cheating, proving it's very difficult. Um, you're, you telling me somebody cheated is not proof. Uh, no matter how much I trust you, it doesn't matter who it is. One player telling me the other player cheated is not proof. Proven cheating... I've never had and never had to deal with. Um, if I had it and it was proved, I would that person would be ejected from my tournament instantly. Game over. You're done. We're. It, it, I would potentially allow them back. It wouldn't be a lifetime ban, um, but I I would send the strongest possible message I could that that is absolutely unacceptable behavior. Um, and it brings me to mind our first year. The first year, the winner. So, so we did our trophies and we did our awards. And as I'm about to give the award, the guy stands up and says, and said, like, I, I'm announcing, literally announcing best overall. And the guy stands up and says, um, through some discussion, I've just come to realize I've, that I played a rule wrong and quote unquote, I'm, I'm not sure if it impacted our games or not. So, I mean, it just, I'm like, it just, what do I do? And I didn't know what to do. So, um, so I just said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what to do about this. I need to do some investigation. I gave him the award and later on, it turned out that there was pictures and, and it was a Skyborne Slayers rule way back when, and it was this huge 36 diameter radius. Ish. It was a massive issue. Uh, it absolutely impacted games. And it was a new guy and we talked and we had a conversation and I, and I was like, look, you know, we need to have this conversation. I've got I've got pictures and I can show you and I can prove to you that what you did do mattered and it affected how people played, um, whether you did or not. Uh, you know, and the right move here is for you to rescind the award. Uh, and I said, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to take it away from you. I don't know what I'm going to do. He ultimately rescinded the award. I never had to make the decision. That was the right move because he totally played the rule wrong for all five games. You know, he was consistently wrong, which is good. That wasn't cheating. That was error. Um, he rescinded the award, and it went to the next guy. 
Um, so, so it was good, but it wasn't cheating, but, but it was a heck of a surprise because I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I think, I think cheating is intention, right? Um, yeah. I, think, I think there are times that we can all say hand on heart that we've gotten something wrong. We've picked up a dice that shouldn't have been picked up. Uh, we have uh, thought a, a range of a spell or an, an ability or done something we shouldn't have done. And, you know, the, unintentionally, when we try to keep up the speed of the game, errors will occur. Absolutely. Uh, but when you start systematically doing things, you know, uh, nudging a, a wound counter to be less than it was or, you know, nudging models forward or uh, saying that something does uh, moves five but you move at seven, you know, that's the that's the systematic cheating that uh, I would have a real issue and I think to your point proving it is part of a challenge. And hopefully, hopefully through a rules dispute, you can get them to raise the issue with a TO before it becomes systematic. I agree. Uh, because it's a stigma, right? If if somebody gets called out for cheating and it becomes public, you, you don't get away from that easily in our circles. It's going to stick I, with you for a long, long time. And I, ho I, I know there are certain people in my Australian community that have this reputation uh, whether it's true or not, it's you know there's there's been enough stories that that's now following along with them. And uh, as a tournament organizer, if that if I know that person is coming, I just need to casually remind them, or just like, hey, look, just I'm aware of the stories. I'll keep keeping an eye out. Uh, but on the day, I need to you know just just manage it, be present as a tournament organizer, yeah. and um, and. Yeah, it's, it's, it's if you get that reputation here, you pretty much are done. Um, people don't want to play with you because that they know that's what you're about, you know, and there's, uh, so uh, just don't do it. It's not worth it. No. Yeah. No, I agree. And it's, and again, it's not like that we have big prize pools that, you know, it's worth it. It's not, you're not winning big money here. So why, no. why would you go out? It's a game why? prize. Yeah. Game. And, and yeah, get yourself out. Come on. Last question came from both uh, a couple of people like Nine Inch Charge, Dan and uh, and Tom Megan's, but they'd asked, you know, do you have any favorite house rules to apply? So house rules being rules that uh, are only uh, used at your particular event and not a part of the Games Workshop system. So perfect example is uh, measuring uh, distance by diameter. Um, the old Wildwoods where you had holes in the trees, you could pull them out and, you know, the hole still is the tree. It's just for yep. movement purposes. And I still use that because because our forests, uh, because of Adepticon terrain, are like that. Yeah. Um, I talk about um, one of my house rules is about army-specific terrain. Um, I don't require that you use the GW piece, but I require that the footprint print be an exact match. So if you don't want to use the GW print piece, that's fine, but the footprint has to be a match. And it's real important on some of those bigger pieces. Um, from a gameplay perspective, uh, we try to prevent clubmates from playing each other because these, like I said, these guys travel three plus hours, a lot of them. So nothing's worse than coming and getting game one against your buddy you just drove six hours with. Yeah. Um, so we do that. Um, I don't allow dice apps. That's one of my house rules. Um, but I'm sorry, we're not doing that. I don't care about technology advance. I don't care. I don't care. You're rolling the dice. If you don't want to roll the dice, this is the wrong place for you. I'm with you on that one. I'm with you on uh, that one. Um, you know, I specify that all the terrain will be mysterious, so you will be rolling for it in your game. 
Um, I do provide tiebreakers. That's one of my house rules. Tiebreakers for every award. It's documented and yes. it's ridiculous. So that I, again, it's that's about removing yourself from any possibility of impropriety. I took that from you actually, because I haven't seen many packs where they've actually included the tiebreaker. So should you be on the same VP, how do you make it up? And by having it on the document in advance shows that you aren't showing preference, especially if you have like a club mate or a friend in contention to remove that. That's any speculation that you're making a ruling to favor your friend. Nope. It's been the place back for ages. We rule uh, best in alliance by this. And should there be a tiebreaker, it's Y then Z. Brendan Melnick had one of the best ones I've ever seen. So I always have tiers of tiebreakers, and I usually go three tiers, A, B, C. Well, his fourth tier for his tiebreaker was, in the event that you can't decide after A, B, C, there will be a foot race. <laughs> he was going to have people go out and run. That was just funny. Has he ever had, um, a, has he ever had one? That would be pretty impressive. No, no, no. That didn't happen. Because uh, that was not everybody was able to compete. Um a big house rule for me, and this is, for some people, this is a massive bone of contention. Those objective secured markers became real popular. The, the big felt, the big 12-inch yeah. set mats, you know, those are not allowed. Uh, I spent a lot of time making this terrain. And for me, those kill the aesthetic of the game. And you're not putting those on the tables, full stop. Are you, talk, are you talking about the clear ones, or are you talking about the ones with just the neoprene that has like a club logo or? A... Well, before it was, it was like the mouse pads, the neoprene ones that were not clear. I'm not a big fan of the clear. I'll have to decide if I'm going to allow the clear. My 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 guess is that I'm not. I understand everything about why they're good, uh, but I just don't like them. Um, so I probably just will not allow them ever at our event. And that's just that's just my role. I won't allow them at Adepticon. Uh, I understand what they do for the game. I understand why they're good. Um, uh, I make all that terrain. No. <laughs> it's it's a 100% an aesthetic thing. And, and, and then there's been wonderful discussions in the past between aesthetics versus, um, uh, you know, breaking your immersion versus the practicality and practicality. And I think, again, Whatever you expect from your event, it's just being very clear on what you can and can't do. Absolutely. If you're not letting someone use dice apps, this is how it works. Another one for me, for example, that I really like is if the dice roll isn't flat, you got to re-roll it. So anytime that you roll a dice and it might hit a terrain and it kind of like it's kind of not, sure. not clear, you should re-roll that dice. That's, um, that's my personal rule and how I play, but I don't stipulate that as a house rule at my event. Um, some as, like to me on that note, like as long as you're consistent, if that's how you do it every time, great. But Correct. What you, what you can't do is sometimes pick up what we call a cock dice. You can't sometimes pick it up and reroll it, and sometimes not. Yeah, but so it's typically. Like, oh, no, no, that was flat. Like it's fine. Yeah. But when it was one, you're like, oh no, was, well, I couldn't, I couldn't see it properly. I reroll it. Typically, that's part of the the pregame conversation we have with our opponents. Is you know, I do this. I tell people when we start the game. Oh, by the way, if it's not flat, I will be rerolling it. Yeah. No, look. Either way, or whatever it might be, just having clear, concise yep. what you're consistently looking for, uh, and then you know anything else is negotiable by the table. Yeah, and then I, the last one I did. I did kill pounce. I, I had some kill point clarifications. Part of what I got from the face hammer guys about, you know, summon the models. Do they count? Yes or no. 
how about battalions? You kill, you know, there's technically no way to earn kill points for a battalion. So, but if you kill all the models in the battalion, then yes, you also score the battalion points. How about endless spells? How do you score endless spells? Because there's no, you can't kill them. Well, then so, once you cast them, they become neutral, right? So, that, that's right. So, so it was if they're not on the table at the end of the game, they count for kill points. So then it puts a it puts a burden then on the guy with the endless spells. He's got to get them out there, or else I mean, he's giving up kill points. Only on three endless spells now, so it shouldn't be that. But I think I think you're right. Like the clarity on on, yep. on kill points, the clarity on um, yeah, just I think that's and, and we only use kill points for tie kill kill points was one of my tiebreakers for many categories. Which now has changed, obviously, in GHB. It used to be the, it used to be the tiebreaker for your scenarios. Now you've got your secondary, your auxiliary objectives. Yep. Uh, so your kill points can really just be a third piece. But um, I think there's been interesting pieces, even just the way you score uh, your event. You know, you could have, you know, I've seen some really good ways that you score additional points, such as denying your opponent from getting their secondary objective to scoring one, two, th three of them. Like, there's just... Again, like my advice to anyone who's listened to this is go go look at some of the big events in the world. These packs have been used by hundreds of players. They've been refined. Uh, go look at South Coast GT, Bobo, Blood and Glory, uh, CanCon, Midwest Meltdown, Adepticon, LVO, Nova. Uh, unlike, you know, there's, then there's so many other, you know, events after that. Um, look at my plaque, Sydney GT. There's just so many big events that have been practiced and refined that you can just look at how they've done it, you know, steal it, borrow it, and then make it your own. Yeah, I on the denial topic, I, I don't like to give points for denying your opponent from achieving something. Um, so I like to I like to give points. Like so you can earn points. If you achieve your objective, you earn it. Period. Because what I hate um, as I don't want anybody to go home zero points for the tournament weekend. I want them to have some points that they've earned. On the flip side, what I don't like uh, is Domus and I, we're playing a game, right? And uh, if there's no d denial system, uh, we could just look at each other and go, Domus, you scored your two, I scored my two uh, auxiliaries. And there's no skin in the game. And uh, yeah. I know that there are games and there are communities and tournaments where people have forgotten to do their secondary objectives. And at the end of the game, just agreed, I oh, will just mark each other. We got both of them when that actually wasn't true. So I do like the denial as a, sure. um, I, a manager. I get, that. I get that. And we typically don't have those agreements, but like we will have. So say we were playing, I forgot to do it. Um, but I wiped you off the table and then we're just, you know, in that case, you know, it's, well, I totally would have done it. And, I, you know, we were hurrying, you know, there's some, so there's like a little bit of give and take there. You know, I could have earned those points, but we decided we had to rush through the last round to get our game done. So, of course, it was just something I oversaw. So then you just talk, like for me personally, I just talk with my opponent and we figure that out. Yes, yeah. no, maybe. And if he's cool with it, great. And if he's not, that's great too. Oh. Like I, for me, I'm not in it to win it anymore. Um, I like to do the best I can, of course, but you know, I, I'm more about the, the time we have together on the table. I think either way you're hearing different examples of how to do it. Uh, I just don't like top tables, just deciding like both of us I, scored secondaries and someone who legitimately was doing it properly being denied for being honest. And so, I think that's a fair point. I do. Absolutely.
So, I mean, again, like take, take, and this is the cool thing, guys, is you have so many people who have written tournament packs who have done this now. Take what you like. If you think Domus's uh, paint scores is too rigid, you know, make your own. If you like that's, uh, you know, uh, 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 Blood and Glory is doing something that no one else is doing, take it from there. You know, look and, and, and you know, create your own recipe for the event that you want to run that you think your players are going to want to attend. Uh, but there's so many great assets out there. Uh, again, go check out the, the two players packs in the episode description. But Domus, is there anything else that you'd want to share? I mean, you've dropped three hours of 24 karat gold uh, to the stream. You it's know, really uh, been three hours. Good lord. Three hours, man. It's been. Three I could hours. talk to you all night. And I could talk to you all night. Uh, and I am. I can't wait to come to America next year. Uh, oh, save me, save me an Adepticon ticket. I'm saving up my pennies every month and putting money aside because Adepticon is now my single goal for international Warhammers. Yeah, and that's. I mean, I we're hopeful that 2022 is a go. It all signs kind of are swinging that way. Uh, you know, it's just. Uh, so if I had anything to say to anybody, it's uh, simply to to be safe, um, whatever that means in your area for you personally, and to uh, uh, treat each other with respect because it's sometimes it's harder and harder it seems to do in this world. And uh, uh, I don't I don't agree with everybody, but I try to treat everybody with respect regardless. And. You know, the disclaimer here is that we've had three hours. I'm just going to pull this comment up. Let's leave that here. I'm going to leave it up here for a while. Love um, story yeah. for this. That's right. Nothing but love, baby. Nothing but love. Beard love. love. Right, I'm going to pull that one up. Beard love. Um, we haven't talked specifically about COVID because, uh, and the reason I, we, we've purposely avoided the topic of COVID is because each country uh, is, who's listening to this has different rules. Um, Australia, again, right now, I'm very fortunate to be able to play face-to-face. -face, and the rules that I have in play to create a safe space is very different to the Americas, to England, to every different community. So I think it's just as a tournament organiser, be flexible, uh, adhere to any of the rules that are out there. I know in Australia we have um, uh, alcohol rules and, you know, uh, we have certain rules around serving alcohol and, you know, uh, you know, you know, hopefully the right people who are serving the alcohol are doing the right checks to make sure that someone's not getting inebriated. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, all these, but again, what I have in my community is different. So just apply those rules of common sense in your community, be flexible. Things change. People are going to drop out. You're going to get, you're going to get people drop out, uh, you know, during the game. Uh, I've had people who've had food poisoning uh, at home, not at my event. Yep. Um, you're going to yeah. be throwing curveballs. You're going to... all. You do have to to be able to react during the event because all kinds of stuff has happened. Um, you know, I had a guy who whose wife broke his arm and he had to leave. You know, we've had all kinds of stuff. You yeah. just see it. And um, like our my COVID plan is simply to not hold the event because it's illegal to hold that big of an event right now where I live. Um, so you know, unfortunately, that's just. That's just the way it is. And I won't hold the event again until I'm sure it's safe. I'm high risk. So until I'm personally safe, until I'm sure it's safe for me and safe for everybody else, I just, I can't. And, you know, to, to, to share that, you know, things can happen at any point in time. I've been in an event and in the middle of game two, I've, I, I got a message that one of my friends had passed away. 
So like, like literally anything can happen, you know, whether it's, uh, and you know, life always takes priority, you know, got to go your wife, your kids, work calls you up Uh, as a tournament organizer. You just got to be flexible. There are things that you just can't plan for that are going to happen and you got to do the best you can with what you've got. Yep, 100%. So if people wanted to learn more about your dome as they want to chat with you, uh, I do have your Twitter handle below. Is that probably the best place that they can chat with you? Obviously, they're going to come to your next event, uh, and I will be there at Adepticon as long as, you know, I'm allowed out of my country, uh, and we can hug it out, bitch. That's right. Twitter is definitely the best place to start. Um, You know, depending on the conversation, it may be easier to move to a different platform, but definitely reach out via Twitter. You're a great man with knowledge, and you know if Domus doesn't know, he'll definitely know. There are a lot of great people, you know, um, you know Dave who looks after uh, for Nashcon. You know, there's just yep. so many great tournament organizers. Uh, there's there's such a big pool just here, and and I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to throw more people under the bus. Like I threw Bryce under the bus to take over Wapaka, um, and then the next, and then like three months later, I also put I asked him to to help run the team tournament for Adepticon. So. You know, just trying to get more people involved. Uh, the more people that get involved, the easier it is for all of us. We have events to go to and play in. There you go. Uh, and the, maybe we can end this show on a high. That's quite funny. So Chewin mentioning that uh, he was playing a game of uh, Apocalypse in his friend's basement and uh, his wife went into labor uh, and called him after deployment. So anyone who knows Apocalypse, it's like a, a massive, like 5,000 point plus battle. So if you could have called before deployment, you could have saved some time. But, uh, again, anything can happen. I actually had one player pull out day one because he had food poisoning, and then day two going, oh, no, I'm good now. Like, okay, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. I, uh, I do want to say I got a nice message from somebody, and I do want to say that this has been awesome tonight, Coach. Thank you for having me. I haven't played Warhammer now since January of 2020. Um, and I've taken a big personal hiatus as well, just doing other things. Uh, we, we took in some foster kids. Life has just been crazy at my house. But it's just been awesome to talk about Warhammer, to see some of uh, the names of my friends pop up in chat as they make comments. Uh, it's just been amazing. I'm so excited to get back to playing and hanging out with people. Um, it's it's it, it's one of my greatest loves, uh, uh, and I cannot wait to get back to it full swing as someone who's in the future um first off thank you thank you uh, it's been an absolute honor having you on the channel but as someone who is living in the future and is allowed to play at events um i have noticed that is a little bit different but most importantly i think you know when i when i look at the events kind of leading into covid um there's a lot of like heavy meta chasing people just want to win the events and and you know the dick swinging contest of who's got the biggest dick but in the events that I've climbed up to, I've noticed people who just want to hang out more. People have been running fun lists. People have have le- worried about the meta list because they just want to roll dice. And I'm sure that'll pick up again with time. But I think, you know, it's been a long time since we hung out with friends. And I think as a tournament organiser, that's what I try to facilitate. How do I just reconnect people who haven't played game for a while? Maybe I extend the rounds to be a little bit longer. Um, I find ways with cheat sheets or promote certain things to speed up the games a little bit. Uh, Maybe I simplify the rules, just, you know, maybe not add too many complex things as people are getting back up into the speed and enable people to have fun with each other. And I think that's for me as a tournament organizer is what I'm trying to create right now. 
No, that's awesome. I'm uh, I'm super jealous because uh, we could we could have small events, but we I mean my my event was going to be a 200 player event. I you know I, I the idea of rolling back and having a small event, you know, it would be I I, I just don't want to do it because how do how do you pick right? Like I would want to at that point I'd be cherry picking who you know I don't want to do that. I don't want to I don't want to pick. I don't. The dome know. is invitational. I yeah, I, I I don't want to do it. I because I, I want to see everybody. So like for me, I'm just waiting till I can see everybody. And my hope is that's Adepticon 2022, um, and, and I hope we can we can all be there, um, and drink and be merry. And all right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm putting a line in the sand. That is my goal. Uh, I'm saving my money. As long as I'm allowed to come from Australia over to Adepticon, I'll be going for tickets. I'll be up at four o'clock in the morning again chasing the meta trying to get that ticket trying to get a spot in the hotel but so we'll have coach 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 con coach, coach con, con. con the night before or something and that's a cool oh, thing about conventions but domus it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for your time you've got your your social links below um if you guys want to chat more again i've also in the description to uh your players packs as well as your uh your painting guide if people want to kind of get an example of of their pack and as always, uh, come join us on the Discord if you want to continue the conversation. I'm happy to share any of my TO expertise, maybe specific to your uh, situation, if that's something you want to chat about. But Domus, again, you're a legend. Thanks, buddy. You too. All right. See you guys. See you. I hope you found that discussion valuable. If you did, give the video the old thumbs up. And if you have a comment or an insight, leave it in the comment section below. The champions over here are my AOS coach Patreons and YouTube members. So you guys are bloody legends. Thank you for all the support. If you want to know more about the support programs, the links are below down here in the episode description, along with the link to the Discord server, so we can continue this conversation. Until next time, don't forget to name your characters and have a good one.